Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, welcome everybody. We're joined, uh, we're, we're going to get there real soon. We're joined today by a uh, historian, Scott Giltner professor at Culver Stockton College who we've been wanting to have you on for a long long time did we get like derailed by COVID or what happened I can't remember I'm not sure but it's uh it's great to be here this is pretty exciting but it's been a while that we tried to get you on yeah it's been a while I think uh he's the author you probably wrote I don't know you probably wrote a bunch of things different papers and whatnot a lot of papers this is the only book I, yeah. I sort of thought when I finished grad school well, I'm gonna write a book every couple years and then I taught at a small college and all of a sudden life has less time than I thought and here we are years later and still the same book. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this book is fascinating though, man. It's called Hunting and Fishing in the New South. I bet, yeah. Hunting and Fishing in the New South, Black Labor and White Leisure after the Civil War. And I'll tell you what, I it, uh we'll get into it in greater detail, but just to kind of tease up before we hit a couple of things we got to hit. Um the book covers many things, but one of the things I found most fascinating, and this kind of betrays the fact, and I hate to admit this to you. Like I didn't finish the damn book. <laughs> I really meant to, and I was getting along good, and I was I was folding pages and making notes. But then Yanni wanted to check out the book, mm-hmm. so it's his fault. That, that's okay. So we'll, I, we'll blame I, him. But I skimmed around. Maybe to collectively it. we got probably through. I'll give us eighty <laughs> percent. I am very like. Well, I'll tell you if you scroll, if you went and explored my text message exchanges, you would find where I sent a picture of that book cover. To my brother Matt, mm-hmm. 
I sent a picture of that book cover to uh, a biologist named Robert Abernathy. I sent it to my brother Danny. I don't do that for every book. All right, I appreciate that. I'm right now. I'm, I'm uh, just tucked into a history of the Hmong and the CIA hmm. and the secret wars in Laos. I didn't send that book cover to anybody. I might later. <laughs> Like this damn book, but but it covers among many other things the hunting practices of slaves. It's like, of course, you know, you think about it, like, of course they were engaged in the activity mm-hmm. in, in some areas, I'm sure, but it's like it never really gave it any thought mm-hmm. what that that aspect of that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's sort of how it was, you know, when I first started the project because it was it was such a novel topic. And for some people, you know, their response was, "Really, you want to study that?" And then other people said, well, that's so mundane. Of course they hunted and fished for food. What's what's the larger significance of that? And I thought, well, that's that's what I'm going to find out. I guess I combined both those people. Mm. I'm a combination of, oh, it makes sense. Of course they did. And then like, but I'd have to know more, mm. which is the path you went down and we'll get to but it. But it's not exactly something that they covered off on in, in your, uh, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade oh, social, doing American studies, history? No. social <laughs> studies <laughs> class. And then know? there was the hunting and fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, like yeah. you said, we'll get into it later, but like, seems like it made such a big impact. I think from reading reading the book that it maybe should have been covered. Maybe, maybe one of the things that's kind of impressed me over the past twelve years since twelve years, wow, since the book came out, is that it was there really wasn't much on the topic uh, at the time, and since then, quite a bit more has come out, and then other topics that are sort of conceptually similar, sort mm-hmm. of odd topics that people would think of as a pretty mundane thing that's actually more revealing, whether it's the history of African-American beaches or uh, the history of black barbers, you know, think there's all these interesting, uh, you know, studies of environmental use and occupations that haven't really been given much attention before. And it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, when, when we talk about that, we'll get into kind of a, a, a twist, an interesting twist or an interesting wrinkle in um, the much celebrated advent of the American conservation movement. And uh, you'll see. But first, we got stuff to talk about. Uh, Yanni ran his, full, uh, his first full marathon. Yeah. Wow. Like, like in an organized sense, or you just counted off no. that many miles? Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a funny story, I think, um, because I wasn't, I, I got into uh, a race here in Bozeman called the uh, Bridger Ridge Run, which is in August, and it's 20 miles, but it's across the mountains, and uh, it's uh, like the, the course record is somewhere around three hours, which, you know, people run like two-hour marathons these days, I believe. Um, so anyways, it, it's, a, it's an arduous course. Wrap the whole damn marathon up in two hours. Yeah, I mean, you're running like something crazy, like four minute miles for 26 That's... miles in a row. That'd be great because when I think of running a marathon, I think of like, <laughs> holy cow, would that be just boring. Well, yeah, because I, I did it up in two hours. I did it in twice that time. Yeah, it's a long it took, time. Took me four just... hours of running. But uh, no, so I uh, met a fella through some works, kind of unrelated work, but not work stuff. Um, I won't get into the details, but I meet a fella and we kind of became friendly and we're like, ah, we should hang out. Well, the the initials of his occupation are B-I, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Not not Barber. (laughs) Not Barber. We have similarly (laughs) aged kids, both happen to be girls 
And we're like, man, we could probably hang out. And, and not a baker. No, not, not a baker. <laughs> he used to live in uh, Colorado where I used to live. So, you know, we had a lot of connection. Mm. Anyways, uh, a week later after meeting him, I'm running my dog on the little like three mile loop that I run all the time near our house. And he pulls by me and then turns around and comes back. And his wife rolls down the window and he's like, hey, what's up? My buddy Nick was just talking about you, and then we see you running here, and uh, you know we didn't know you were a runner, and we're home. I got home. Home. Back up. I just got confused. Okay. You met the guy. Yeah. And you had a lot of shared. So mm. You had some shared experiences. Mm-hmm. And then you're running with your dog. Yeah. A week later. And who runs into you? He, his wife, and his two kids. So and, the same guy runs into. Yeah, you. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. They're just driving. They just happen to be driving over to Paradise Valley, cutting through Trail Creek. I'm with you now. I and, got you now. And uh, so they turn around and uh, they come just to chat for a little bit. And they're like, she's like, you know, we're celebrating Nick's 40th this weekend. And part of the celebration is uh, Leftover Salmon happened to be playing. I don't know who all here knows that band, but they happen mm. to be playing. You never heard of Leftover Salmon? Don't believe so. They're like a jam band from the 90s, but they're still playing hard. Kind of like guys. in the widespread panic. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great name. Yeah, Leftover Salmon is the perfect mm-hmm. jam band name, for sure. Um, My wife's got the blues. That's why it's been panic. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I never got into any of that music that now much. I've got them. I stopped at the dead. Um, anyways, they're like, part of the celebration this weekend is uh, Nick wanted to run a marathon for his birthday. So tomorrow morning, they're going to run right here from Trail Creek down to the Lock Laven campsite on the Yellowstone marathon you want to go we could use you we need some people to pace and if it was just an open invitation to be like hey you can run the marathon or you could run like 10 miles of it just like come and have fun we've got aid stations and t-shirts and kids with bells and and there's going to be like 10 people or so involved i'm like yeah sounds great let me see if i can get some babysitters because i was running solo so had to drop the kids off the next morning at like six o'clock in the morning at my brother-in-law's house and then I actually started... Didn't they wind up spending the night there the night before, though? That was my understanding. Uh, we were hoping to do that, but it, it didn't quite come uh, together. I thought I caught him in a lie, Corinne. That was a very good plan. Just tr- trust but verify. That's yeah. what that's called. Yep. Yeah. So why, why kids with bells? <laughs> this, 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 this may surprise you. I am not a runner. Moral support? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to cheer okay. and, and ring bells and, and yell and, and whatever. And yeah. so... I actually started probably half an I caught them a half an hour into their run um, because I just, they were starting at, I forget what it was, seven, and I didn't get there till 7.30, something just along those Just get lines. going when it's still cool out. They wanted to get going early, yeah. And so I basically just drove until I caught up to them and then found the next pull-off, pulled off. Uh, they gave me a uh, Nick Benson uh, birthday marathon T-shirt. I threw it on, and we started running. And at that point, I didn't, like... I was like, I'm just going to do what I can. Like, I know that I'm capable of 20. Don't know if I'm feeling like I'm going to pull off 26. But at the end, like I said, I started roughly Mm -hmm. 30 minutes, which is roughly probably at our pace, three miles behind. So at the end of it, I ran another three and a half miles. It's like freaking Forrest Gump, man. By myself. (laughs) Just kept going. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the hardest three miles because when you're running in a group – you're chatting and everybody's, you know, oh, pushing yeah, yeah. each you're other along. The, you're caught up in the... Well, 
everybody else is now in lounge chairs with their <laughs> running shoes off, you know, dumping water on them. And I'm like, okay, just fill my fill my squeeze bottles back up and uh, give me some more of those salt pills. I'll be back in an hour. And so, yeah. Well, no, how did you know who went and, pay, who went and uh, measured it off for you? Uh, so another vehicle, uh, we knew that the dirt road that we had uh, run in on from the pavement to the campsite was exactly a mile. So I knew I had roughly three miles to go. So I ran out the dirt and then I just timed myself. I ran seven minutes down the pavement, turned around, ran seven minutes back and then back. So I ran somewhere between probably 26 and 27 miles. I can't tell you exactly. Hmm. Good job. That's but like yeah, felt good. Yeah, you just roped yourself in. Last Dude, I minute. think we need to have a race off between you and Durkin. Oh yeah, because he's big. He's big marathon. Oh runner, yeah, man. yeah. He is. He is. But I don't. I don't. Yeah. You think you'd beat him in a race? Well, yeah, just because of just a pure age thing. We've talked about it. He's not. He's not. So at, Durkin at his prime. like concedes. He's just conceded ahead yeah. of time. And I've run with him. And, and I, so, I'd be like, do you still want to race though? <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, made some new friends, some friends that you actually know. Yeah. Yeah. Our, J- Jeremy. And, yeah. Well, uh, our kids, our kids go to school with their kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, interesting. His, um, his truck, he was in his house and a big windstorm came in a giant spruce flattened his truck i did not hear that man, story you could have been sitting in there texting or something man it would have been the end of you for really sure really bad way to go would have been the end of you he told me a great story about how his i think only like how old is that boy his 10 11 same age as my kid yeah 10 11 10 11 bugled in like multiple bulls for him last year into archery that. range really yeah. No one told me that story. I'm like, dude. Talented kid. I got to start training my kids up. <laughs> like, I'm way behind. Get to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird because his kid and my kid uh, recently got an English sparrow. And uh, she, his the the guy with the, that you ran, well, no, she ran with you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she cooked up the little breast fillets for him and some butter. But you think that that would have inspired him to tell me that story, but he never told me that story. The kid didn't. Either way. Uh, Humble young man. Corinne, hit, hit everybody with your correction. Okay. Um, and then rate Phil's haircut while you're at it. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, the last time I'll do haircut first. Mm-hmm. Last time, last time Phil's kind of had like a sideways. Yeah. He looked like he looked like flock of seagulls. <laughs> Not quite. I wouldn't go that <laughs> far. But yeah, looks good. Looks good. And time for summer and short sides. Yeah. yeah. Solid 8.5, you'd say? 8.8? Oh, nine? wow. Yeah, yeah that's good. You, you, good. Go, you, you, you run like a number three on the sides there, Phil? Well, here I, I've got stick straight hair, and I hate almost every haircut I get. Uh, so this is... Do you like this one? Yeah. yeah. I don't, have this I don't mean like a rating. I mean the, 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 rate, the clip. The, 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 the clippers. I used to just bring take a number two to my whole head when I was growing up. That's a good I, idea. Um, but now, I, yeah, I asked her to go short, shorter on the sides, longer on top. I like it. Looks great. Your wife like it? Yeah. That's all that matters. Exactly. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> um, I'm so jealous. I don't know why we asked Corinne what she thinks about it. <laughs> I've not hair in eight years. I'm so jealous of these young guys <laughs> running around debating yeah, their flock of seagulls hair. Yeah. yeah. You still got some, though. I can see it growing in there Just a little, a little bit. bit. 
But you could grow the the you could grow the rim out long. I, I could grow the skullet, I suppose, if, yeah. uh, if I wanted to go that way. Yeah. I think that when I get there, I'm probably going to do that. All right, long. That's that long strip. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, just nothing up front. Just you know, what what are they? I've heard that called the Kentucky waterfall. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the official PC term, but. All right, Crin's, uh, Crin's correction. I okay. like where the correction came from. Yeah, I, that that's really the point of me telling this. So in the spirit of uh, being precise and accurate, um, in our previous episode when we were talking about deer vehicle collisions, uh, I'd mentioned a bunch of Wisconsin counties ranking up top uh, in terms of the, the number of collisions. And one of them... Uh, I, I just completely butchered the pronunciation of. It's spelled W-A-U-K-E-S-H-A, and I pronounced it Wakisha, and I, I did say I was probably not saying that correctly. Um, and later, I, uh, I'm i not a huge Instagram user, but on it for, for work and such, and so I, I saw that I'd had a DM... DM'd you. Yeah, DM'd me. Hmm. DM'd me. It was important to that person. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I would think what reason, the only reason I'm surprised by that is it seemed like a good way to have your your correction go unnoticed. Right. Some, yeah, like, because yeah. you're relying yeah. on someone, like, digging through DMs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Which is a real Hail Mary. I mean, you know, when I'm on there, you'll see little notifications. So you'll I paid ch- attention. Okay. Yeah. I paid attention. Um, but I think the moral of the story here is if you really want your correction to be noted, you should email the meat eater, the meat eater at the meat eater.com and put in big capital letters. Correction. Yeah. Actually, yeah. sorry. It's I, meat eater at the meat, just meat eater. Com. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve, mm-hmm. people DM me all the time trying to get me to feed ideas to you. They're like, Steve will never read if I, if I write to yeah. him, but Phil, <laughs> no never, one pays you attention never tell to me the ideas. Exactly. It doesn't work, so stop doing it, people. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't... Okay, so Waukesha. I, I don't get too many uh, uh, DMs, so I, I will pay attention to those that come through. Um, so the the correct pronunciation was pointed out to me in a lovely note from uh, from a listener who made himself known. So it's... NFL linebacker uh, for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Joe Schobert. So thanks, Joe. Um, he very clearly spelled out how it should be pronounced. Waukesha. He was like, I grew up, I grew up there, and you pronounce it W-A-L-K dash A-H dash S-H-A-W. So I, I just, I was like, wow. That's so clear, and I I butchered it. So man, we should uh we should have maybe you should reach out to him because we were wanting to get that football player that likes to eat squirrels. Yeah, this could, maybe he likes to eat squirrels. Yeah, yeah. But I, we should have him on, and we could do a thing where we test uh if if he know like well we could test my NFL knowledge <laughs> <laughs> against his outdoor knowledge. Yeah. Oh boy, I think we've got a lot of NFL uh, oh, yeah, listeners. Dude. Maybe we need to you know we could like rate. Mine on a sliding scale of one to ten, like rate my NFL knowledge on yeah. a sliding yeah. scale of one to ten, and then rate his outdoor knowledge on yeah. a sliding scale. That would be fun. So you get the highest score. Yeah. Uh, Waukesha sounds like something that we should have uh, Clay Newcomb 
say. <laughs> let, oh, yeah. let Clay pronounce it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He'd do a good job at it. Yeah. Uh, he likes those kind of arguments, too. A couple, uh, I don't know if these are correct. Yeah, one kind of correction. Um, And one note. So we, we covered last week, we, we got to talking for quite a while about a fish poaching operation in my home state of Michigan where these boys got caught with like way too many fish in their freezer. Okay, point. There's a couple different points here. One is that, so these ones that we're talking about how in some states, let's say you have a daily bag limit of, I don't know, give me, get, get me with something. Five. Five, but what? Walleye. Okay. So people in the South should try to, if they don't have walleye, try it, it's a fish. Um, <laughs> so do you have a daily possession limit of five walleye? No, you, you have a daily bag limit. Right, It'd be called a daily limit. bag limit of five walleye. And you might notice in your fishing regulations that it says possession limit of two daily bag limits. That meaning in your possession, you cannot have more than two daily, you can't have any more than 10 walleye. But what varies by state to state, what varies from state to state is whether or not, what varies from state to state is whether or not it being cleaned and in your freezer counts right like in alaska it once it's processed and at its final place so it's like it gets to its sort of final resting place and it's processed it is no longer part of your daily bag limit or the possession limit i'm sorry i just keep screwing that up it's not part of your possession limit um if you're driving home from a fishing trip and you have uh you're in a you're in this five walleye a day place you're driving home from a fishing trip and you got 11 walleye in your cooler, you're one walleye over. Um, but you could get home and put those 11 walleye in your freezer and you may or may not be clear depending on what's going on in your state. I even had, uh, I took this question one time to a trooper. In Alaska, they don't have, they don't call them game wardens. The game laws are done by state troopers um, who, you know, kind of have full breadth of enforcement across all laws. But a trooper is telling me, I was like, what if I have a fish shack and I can process and freeze stuff at my fish shack, but then I want to bring it from my fish shack to home. And he said, and he told me that the the way they look at it would be that if I've processed it and got it to, you know, it's sort of like final form and I put it in my freezer at my fish shack, I'm that it's not then part of my possession limit, even though I need to do it, even though I need to transport it again to another home. He says, you're cool. Uh, Texas, it turns out, same thing. You're fine once it's in your freezer. Michigan, that's not the case. And uh, uh, and apologies, I have to, I have to apologize. A Michigan uh, conservation officer wrote in to say he was pretty disappointed in me for some of my comments about this situation. Uh, and, and here's where he, first off, he goes on to say, that that this freezer search, I should probably explain what ha- what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll recap. Some guys in Huron County, Michigan, got caught with like way too many fish in the freezer, <laughs> and they had eighty five <laughs> bags, eighty five bags Ziploc of like Ziploc bags. bags of perch and walleye with hundreds and you know way over the possession limit. Laid out like a drug bust. One of the things I said that is warranted here. As I said, I bet you there was more going on. Like, like it's not like people just show up randomly doing freezer checks. Like I was saying, there's probably something that led to this 
and and this guy doesn't want to be identified, but this guy said that they had been 120 fish over their daily limit, which led them to wanting to have a look in the freezer. So there's that. Do we know what kind of fish? This perch and walleye. Perch and walleye. And panfish, which yeah. I gathered to mean like you know, bluegills and sunfish whatnot. species. Yeah. yeah. Bluegills and whatnot. So the guy was uh the guy's disappointed in me for not condemning having over your bag limit, over your possession limit. And and I should, I should be clear, like that's the case. What I got hung up on, what I got hung up on and what I expressed and talked about was I talked about how common um that practice was and how unaware when I was growing up in that state, how unaware the people I grew up with were about that rule. Just, it, it just wasn't known. I, I don't think maybe they didn't go out of their way to consider it, but no one, I was never part of a conversation as a kid in Michigan about, I can't fish cause I already have 10 walleye frozen. It just wasn't, a thing. And so I expressed that, man, when I see that, I just see like everybody I grew up with freezer. Um, I didn't mean that to say that I think that it's good. I just meant to say that it's, uh, you know, that I saw something in that. And he was saying that I didn't clearly articulate that it's simply just not acceptable and that the regulations are there for a reason. Correct. I apologize. That's true. Don't, break that law it's there for a reason um and not but and when i looked at that i just couldn't help but think of the my dad's friends and and their freezer and they're just complete how shocked they would have probably have been to realize that there was that was a thing that's all was that good enough yeah i also think the way you said and not but it really reveals that you've been married for a while that was Mm. that was was slick (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be like, I, I feel that you got like a little too mad about that situation with the kids, and I'll still go to dinner. <laughs> All right. Yeah. There you go. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, just sitting in on that apology. I think it was well done. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was well done. Did it feel? It felt very diplomatic. Yeah. What I don't want to do is I don't want to like grovel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No groveling. No. It was but very... I want to be like, you're right, dude. You're right. Yeah, it was straight up. Okay. It's coming from an academic. (laughs) It's true. Don't, like, uh, you know what it is, Phil? It's that I took for granted, took for granted that people would understand don't do that. (laughs) Like, don't do that. Right? Don't go, like, follow your state laws. Like, just follow the state laws. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've also never said otherwise, and <laughs> you don't practice otherwise. So I, I know, you know, but kinda... but but, but I, I I could see that he, yeah, I wasn't he the, his thing that I was like making light of it. Yeah. I, I was mm-hmm. just more like wow. That's yeah, I was just... telling you before the show, I picked up on the same vibes he was he was picking up. Just like well, hey, it's sort of even though this uh, you just said this isn't what you were saying. It was sort of like ah, we did the like not we, but you know, I knew people do, did did this all the time growing up. Yeah, it's it's whatever. That's sort of the vibe I got. Really? Yeah. Why didn't you flag it at the time, Phil? It's your show, man. You couldn't see. <laughs> you, could, <laughs> you couldn't see what was going on. Your hair. <laughs> that's, that's right. My eyes are open now, though. 
<laughs> oh, that was during the flock of seagulls period. Yeah. <laughs> Taking you to he had, no, he had no idea what was going on, man. <laughs> what else about possession limits are we going to talk about? Uh, oh, I know what I was going to talk about. Um, just an observation. So, uh, last night we fished, we fished for some brook trout. And that was the native trout, you know, growing up in Michigan. Speaking of, you know, bring full circle to Michigan. That was a native trout. And here in many parts of the West, like, when was all that going on, Yanni, when people were turning brook trout loose? I think around the turn of the century. Really? You know, it was back when, like, the mindset was, like, hey, more fish the merrier, you know? If they'll live there, put them there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put, they introduced brook trout in uh, a lot of these rivers out here. Same thing, they introduced rainbow trout and brown trout. But brook trout are kind of like more accustomed to these small, fast-flowing, kind of nutrient-poor, high-elevation rivers. and they cold. Yeah, they compete more aggressively with the native trout here, which is the cutthroat trout. Um, And eastern cutthroat, east slope cutthroat trout, like east of the continental divide cutthroat trout are hurt and bad. Um. So there's a lot of rivers where you can't keep uh, a lot of these streams around here and rivers in this district. Like you can't keep a, a cutthroat out of the river. But brook trout, which were introduced on purpose, but now they're frown- their presence is frowned upon, you're allowed 20 a day. Wow. So you could imagine, we talk about the importance of looking at your regs, right? You could imagine a situation where someone would be... Uh, up in a stream fishing around and you need to understand that that one you can have 20 of that one with a few spots difference that right? one none at all yeah. so luckily they're pretty easy to tell yeah, apart that's all yeah byron was asking about that <clears throat> or someone was asking about that they're worried about and i'm like yeah you'll you know just give it a good look bring you'll, your trout chart Nice. You know, you can, what uh, what uh, sort of tackle were you catching them with? Uh, me personally. But yeah, you and the crew that you were with. Did you take kids? You, you no, take no, it was just a couple work people. We had a, like a meeting and then went and did that. Um, we had fly poles. My wife wanted to try to catch one on a fly rod, but she gave up on that. Uh, and then I showed her how to huck a worm out there and let it sit <laughs> we started railing on them yeah caught a lot of them. oh still water no beaver ponds still yeah well that and moving water but there's a big hole a big deep area behind a beaver uh, uh, up above a beaver dam mm-hmm. and they were in there it was hot probably down trying to cool off down there a lot of them down in there um here's an interesting thing we we're talking about uh Avian raptors killing livestock. Someone must have wrote in about this. The New Zealand Kia. Mm-hmm. Make his noise, Yanni. You know, I listened to a few on YouTube <clears throat> this morning, and uh, they're pretty similar to a cow elk. You, if you take out, like, the first consonant, I guess, instead of just being like a, yeah, it's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, depending on what they're saying, it's louder. Or, That's you know, pretty good. <clears throat> you know, back and yeah. forth. But uh, yeah, we uh, we experienced Kias when we were in New Zealand. And we were always told, 
we did a bunch of backpacking and there you, instead of bringing tents, you just stay in these huts that are all over the place on this, these trail systems. And what's they, the name of those huts again? I can't remember. Uh, do they have a specific special name? A, yeah, they're cool though. Yeah, they're great. In America, they'd trash them. Yeah, I think I've told that story yeah. about how we were hiking and we had Americans ahead of us and they were trashing the, the cabins ahead of us. It was, it was terrible. Anyways. Not all uh, Americans, but a lot of Americans don't know what to do with a situation like that. It's too good to be true, so <laughs> screw it up. Uh, yeah, free cabin. <laughs> with, with, got, with firewood left behind. There's Golly. Like, there's got to be a catch. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to graffiti it. <laughs> but uh, no, the tip that was given to us was like that they will, they, they like shiny objects and they'll mess with stuff. So when we would leave to go fishing for the day, like don't leave, you know, anything out on a deck or somewhere because they, if they can actually get it away, they will just to like mess with it and play with it. But they'll also just sit there and peck at it and mess with it. And you could have, you know, a hole in your backpack or, you know, uh, a, a fly reel completely ripped apart. And like they said that they would actually get into stuff and just make a mess and whatever. So we were very conscious of tucking away things. But beautiful bird. An alpine parrot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe I, when I was there, I feel like maybe we saw one, but I didn't really, it didn't really register with me that it's, I mean, this thing looks like a full on parrot. Red, yeah. green, and here he is flying across a snowfield up in the mountains. An alpine parrot. But they'll uh, they'll kill lambs. They'll kill lambs and feed on sheep. Yeah, they like land on the back. This guy said they they land on the back and then kind of peck through the wool and peck into the back fat, peck into the fat around the uh, the yeah. kidneys, and uh, it's been a big deal yeah what a way to go an alpine parrot <laughs> pecks through to your kidneys probably didn't see that coming no like no one's gonna believe this my nightmare time. scenario people ask me what happened to my kidney no one's gonna believe me um <laughs> they have some interesting classifications in new zealand they had a the bird had a classification um at one point in time as naturally uncommon which is an interesting classification if you think about it that's a good one. Like you would apply, you know, it would be applied to, um, right, you can see it applied to wolverines, right? Like just naturally uncommon. Never were many. Aren't many. But then they bumped it in 2013. They bumped it to uh, nationally endangered. But I like naturally uncommon mm-hmm. as a way of describing yeah. certain species. And the sheep rejoice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good, bad day for Kia's, good day for sheep. I want to cover off on one last cyst. Uh, we, we had kind of officially put this to rest, but yeah. then a guy wrote in. It's like, off, I find that if you say like, okay, we're not talking about no, it I was anymore. just about to say, that's a common story on this podcast. Okay, we're never talking about this again. Because Ever. then someone- One sec, someone just wrote in. But people, yeah, I think a guy will hear like, they're not talking about it anymore. And then he'll be like, oh yeah? yeah. Well, wait to hear about my daughter's cyst. And then, and then they send in pictures. So we're talking about thing. these cysts- uh, I was talking about this crate, like that my brother had a girlfriend named the Tower of Power, and she had a cyst removed and it had teeth in it. And it's this whole thing. So <laughs> this guy, he doesn't want to say who he is because he doesn't want to humiliate his daughter, which I respect. His daughter had to go in and have one of these dermoid cysts removed from her abdomen. He sent in a picture of it to back it up. Oh goodness. 
16 pounder. A 16 pounder. Yep. The doctor's hands are holding it and it's as though he's holding a deer fawn, but it's not spotted Mm. or brown. That's hard to look at. 16 pounder. Yeah. Tough to look at. Now, if he'd have done an unboxing video (laughs) of that 16 pounder where they open it up and see what's in there, Mm. teeth and jaws and whatnot, (laughs) that'd have gotten that little filter they put on there that says sensitive content. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Steve would be the first to like and subscribe, though, to that (laughs) (laughs) channel. I'd I'd like unfollow the wild turkey doc and just follow that site. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, no more nature is metal. We're going just uh, uh, cysts 24-7. Every day he digs a little deeper into that cyst and just makes an Instagram channel out of it. I would be enraptured. Someone who wants an (laughs) IG profile to really blow up, it should be... uh... It's be really something, something. I'm sure that exists already. You have that removed and you just lost 16 pounds. Uh, Man, yeah, that I almost want to know a little more backstory. Like you'd think something like that must have been uh, messing oh. with her health. Oh, he doesn't really lay out. A, he just kind of gets to the cold, hard facts. Yeah. But there's got to be. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be like, it can't be like, oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know. I, know. I was going to say, what's, what's the time frame on how, how quickly do these things grow before they finally like made the call? Okay, let's let's get rid of this thing. You know what? We'll never know, folks. We're not going to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Great point, Steve. <laughs> you know what? When we have next time we have Adam Lazar on. Oh yeah. Maybe he can do soon. like a quick final word yep. on dermoid cysts. Yep. Whew, man. I was not I was not expecting pictures of giant cysts this morning. This have is, you seen this picture? I I just looked at it. It's. God I'm pretty. I'm pretty impressed. Lee. If you just showed me that, if you showed me that picture, I would, and you said like, what are you looking at? I would say it must be a, someone had a baby and they put the baby back in the placenta and took a picture of it. Yeah. It it looks like a fetus. I wish I could do that. Can you do that, Phil? We're like, like a, like a, Wow. No, that's more. No, I completely understand why why you don't want to talk about this again, but that it keeps coming up. Oh, because this is great. No, no, it's it's yeah. a, it's a, it's titillating. Yeah, yeah, it's classic train wreck. Watch this, Scott. <laughs> Speaking of titillating, let's talk about hunting and fishing in the New South. Oh, transition. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because, like, something will come out that we want to watch. And they lure you in with a one-month trial. And you're like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll do the one-month trial. Then I'll come back and cancel. Then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it. And then, and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users 
and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. So nice. hit, hit me with, uh, hit us with what the book, hit, hit us with the book. I mean, it, it's funny that it's such mm-hmm. an old book, but we're here talking about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part I of I never that- knew about it till. I think part of that has to do with, you know, uh, like I said, at, at uh, you know, at, at the beginning, uh, you know, started teaching at a small private college and all of a sudden, all the time I thought I was going to be spending researching and writing, it's just time I spent teaching and mm-hmm. you know, doing administrative work and things like that. But part of it is I, I didn't know my ass from my elbow when I, when I published the book and I didn't really know how to, you know, how to promote it. And uh, the mistake I made at the time, I think, was to you know, ship it out to people, academics who were studying these topics. To be honest with you, it never occurred to me to to try to connect directly with the hunting and fishing community. It just never yeah, dawned on yeah. me. So Field and Stream didn't do a little 
letter to the editor about it or nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know the the press, you know they they basically they didn't say this, but I think the implication was okay. You know, first time academic, you know, publishing academic. Uh, you know, we do support and promotional work and lots and lots of aggressive stuff for people that are established. So gotcha. you know, good luck with that. Gotcha. And yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, and by then I was focused on teaching more and just sort of. Did some local events and didn't worry about it, but yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I wish I had uh, been a lot more aggressive with uh, getting it out there. Is most of your work as a historian you focused on sports? Yeah, just, I didn't know that they, they they allowed you to do that. Well, that, that that's kind of that's kind of the interesting you know backstory of how I stumbled into the topic. Because when I was finishing college, I thought I was gonna gonna go to graduate school, and and you know I didn't know much about the profession of history and some of these you know novel topics that I thought would be great. People haven't written on this, of course they had. You know I thought okay it would it'd be kind of fresh to study sports. No, it's not fresh to study sports. Plenty of people study sports, and plenty of people like there's still historians think, who focus on sports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I didn't realize that. And uh, for a lot of more traditional academics, you know, studying sports is it's a little frowned on it's seen as frivolous or you know academics can be elitist you know d-bags no sometimes. yeah no. <laughs> amazingly not me though of course no but, hey i don't want to lean into that um i don't want to lean into that stereo I, I don't know why i just said that mm. we have all kinds of academics on but i guess we just filter we filter out the bad ones i don't know yeah you know do you ever I, talk to an academic and think he's just not right that he's a d-bag crin um no i don't think we've I uh, haven't had that experience yet. You for never this, debagged for this, anybody for this podcast, no. But everybody no. seems to have a story <laughs> that they heard no, we about an academic oh, being yeah. elitist or the academic yeah. com- I mean in, in community per- being elitist in person, absolutely. But like for this podcast, I think we just we just have a kind of a good yeah sensor. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that like debags. Yeah, but it is one of those things that everybody's like, oh, yeah, those pretentious. But then I just, I, then the more I think about it, I don't, it hasn't been my finding. Mm-hmm. I was recently saying, I don't know if I said it here, but if there's one story Americans like, it's a story about a celebrity who was an asshole. Mm-hmm. And if there's another story they like, it's about a celebrity who did something really nice. But in that order, they prefer one about like, oh, I met him and he was horrible. He was yelling at a waiter. But then the other one would be, oh, and he gave the kid $20. Like, people love those stories, mm-hmm. you know? And people love a good story about a bad academic. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder when, when you all went around the room and said, oh, I don't know that I've come across a lot of, of academics who are D-bags. It, it reminded me of the old expression that that uh, if you don't know who the office asshole is, it's probably you. So so maybe I'm, maybe I'm the douchebag academic. <laughs> hey, you know what I uh, – just pardon me for one second because you, you might already know this. But what I was reading the other day – I was reading, I went down this kind of like research. I had to research something and that led me to wonder about something else and that led me to wonder about something else. Um, I'll tell you real quick what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was reading about, you know, the guy we bought Alaska off, the, the, the one of the Romanovs, the Alexander II, the Russian czar, mm-hmm. like we bought Alaska off him. His kid in 1872 for his 22nd birthday came out and hunted buffalo with. Buffalo Bill Cody and Custer huh. went on a hunting trip. Wow, huh. 1872, and then Buffalo Bill Cody get that like shortly after got a Congressional Medal of Honor in the Indian Wars. It was then rescinded and then given back to him. But that got me reading about uh, why they sold us Alaska in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's like 
how when you learn about that, you learn about the Seward's Folly, Seward's Icebox. That that because like Seward was the guy on the U.S. that did the purchase, and you always hear that people that he was ridiculed and lampooned for buying Alaska, and people like to point out like, and look now, right? But uh, this historian was saying that is one of like the undying myths mm-hmm. in American history was that it was ridiculed and lampooned. And he went and looked at newspaper editorials. He found like 50 newspaper editorials about the purchase. 49 were overwhelmingly positive. Public opinion was overwhelmingly positive. But some guy threw out like this Seward's icebox thing Mm -hmm. and people latched onto it. And he said, you can't kill the myth that Americans, you, you can't kill the myth that somehow Americans didn't want Alaska. Like they wanted it bad. And the Ruskies sold it to us because they were in a fight with, uh, they were always warring with Britain. Mm. And they knew that with the British presence in Canada, that the next time they got in a fight, they'd lose Alaska anyways. And so they just wanted to dump it on us because we'd be able to hang on to it. Mm. And they didn't want to have to deal with the that. Mm. So anyways, hunting and fishing in the New South. <laughs> <laughs> so you were interested in sports. Yeah, I, I, I thought I was going to study sports. And uh, when I went to grad school, the sort of, Oh, sports. Another guy wants to do baseball. Like, I have an interesting idea. I'm sure you do, but baseball, come on. You know. Can you can you help us understand if you're gonna do sports as a historian, what what does that mean? Like like you know, like baseball, like what aspect of it, right? Well, you know, it's it's really about the the kind of the social and cultural implications. What larger connections, you know, can you draw? Basically for me, I always tell people that, you know, we try to think of what historians do as as a mirror. You know, so what kind of uh, refracting mirror can you get to, to demonstrate, you know, larger social truths, you know, by one specific topic? And, you know, I, I think that academics have a tendency to be really elitist and they think, you know, I, you know I, I've actually heard academics say this at conferences. I, I, when I did a, a panel on my book uh, a number of years ago, somebody said, I, I don't know, I, I, just, I just don't get you know, the, the topic, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people hunt, but just because a whole bunch of people are really into something, that doesn't mean it's worthy of study. And I said, well, I think mm-hmm. you need to think about what you just said. You know, if, if, if a whole bunch of people are into something, it's by definition worthy of study. Okay. And who are, you know, and historians are famous for sort of declaring certain topics acceptable and unacceptable. You know, you back up 75 I, I years, no, I no idea pres- this presidents, diplomats, kings, popes, generals, that's what we study. You know, if you just said, let's study oh, the environment, yeah. let's study women, let's study sports, they would have said, why? You know, what's the point of that? No uh, one cares about that yeah, stuff. Ex- just because everybody <laughs> in like the world loves this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and what well, the funny thing is, and this is maybe off topic, but uh, one of the complaints I have about the discipline of history is when people indulge that, like, well, okay, sports, okay, it's popular, but let's, let's study something more important. What that does is it removes historians further and further away from the lived experiences of real people and mm. makes them less relevant. And then people wonder, you know, why people don't read books anymore. You know, so it's sort of like, in my mind, it's embrace the things that are popular. If they're popular, that means they're culturally resonant and it matters. So part of the reason, you know, like a lot of people, I, you know, kind of, you know, didn't exactly cruise through grad school. It got to be kind of a drag after a while, finishing the dissertation. But one of the things that kept me going, every time I run across someone who would say, oh, God, you're hunting and fishing, I'd be like, all right, let's 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 finish this thing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> just to show. I'm going to steal the argument you just made for when I retire and I write a book, an uh, anti-Shakespeare book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of adapt that argument for my anti-Shakespeare book. 
That sounds good. Removing people from things they can even, like removing kids at an early age, introducing them to the idea of reading things they'll never understand. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and relate to you use the best example, I think, too, because I hear this all the time. You know, people bring up Shakespeare and they'll say, well, what most people don't understand is the, the voice they would use. Uh, they, they say, what, what, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've heard it enough time. Not that it doesn't come naturally to me, obviously, but but I can fake it. Uh, I can fake being a D-bag. Yeah. Um, what most people would say, at least the kind of arrogant academics, is they would say, well, what you need to understand is that Shakespeare was, was consumed by the masses. It, w- it was art for the average person back then. That, that, that means it would have been great for them. Exactly. It was, it, it, it was great for the average people back then. And good I, for them. And what I tell them is- So what we do to so, demonstrate so this is we don't do that. Exactly. So it's like, you're saying we should study Shakespeare because the average person really connected with that at the time. Well, my thought would then be, what does the average person connect with now? And let's study that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, I, I like Shakespeare, don't get me wrong, but but uh, I don't think the idea holds that, you know, the, the sort of division between high and low culture always sort of ticked me off hmm. as, as a historian. So, because if you're, if you're not studying history to study people, what, what the heck are you doing it for? But you don't, you don't, uh, there's not like a movement of like populist historians, are there? Is there? Yeah, there actually is. Yeah. Um, actually, part of the reason I have uh, kind of the outlook on history that I do is, is I went to grad school at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, there's a there's a movement in 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 the discipline of history that's been going on now for the past thirty or forty years it's called history from below, and it's hmm. uh, it's emphasizing you know working class people and uh, cultural traditions and political movements that start from the bottom as opposed to from the top and oh, okay. looking at history not from that old perspective of kings princes generals but but the average person you know Marcus Redeker and a few other professors that I had uh, when I was at Pitt were proponents of that and that's sort of where I come from I try to you know try to not be one of those academics that's studying something that's completely esoteric or you know completely yeah. irrelevant to people's lives although people would tell me that for them maybe this topic's irrelevant but it's definitely not uh you know, high culture is what I'm trying to, is what I'm trying sure, to avoid, yeah. or at least an exclusionary high culture. So how did you, how did you, uh, tell us how you hit on the idea eventually mm. as you, as you explored mm. the sports landscape? Well, I, I, I knew I wanted to stick to sports because it was just something I was really into. And I, and I really rejected that idea that because sports is so popular that it must not be worthy of study. That seemed backwards to me, but I did recognize that uh, I got to, I got to shift gears a little bit. And uh, I took uh, a seminar on slavery and uh, I had the idea of maybe I'll, you know, I'll do a research paper on slaves and sports. And the professor teaching the class said, well, best place to go there are the, the Works Progress Administration slave interviews. You know, in, the, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, there was a part of the, you know, the uh, Works Progress Administration, WPA. Uh, they sent uh, interviewers all over the country to interview former slaves before mm. they passed away because they were you know, pretty old by then. And uh, he said, you know, reading those is going to be your best bet. If there's mentions of slaves in sports, I thought maybe I'd find stuff about boxing or you know, whatever. Also, at, when you start looking into slavery, you were still looking at, at oh, sport. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Looking was, at what, I don't know, like, I guess the definition of sports yeah, more how, toward how, games. Yeah. How, how, how did uh, the slave system, you know, allow for that? And, you know, I, I had, you know, been kind of really interested in a certain, certain stories. There, for example, there was a slave boxer named Tom Molyneux who uh, actually was, was uh, sent overseas to England by his master, and he actually fought the, the British champion uh, in, a, in a very publicized boxing no. match in England that nobody in the States paid attention to at all. You know, so there was some oh, interesting- Oh, wow, he yeah. was owned by a person? Yeah. 
Yeah, he was he was a, an enslaved boxer, and it, it wasn't you know all that common, but it it did exist. And I thought, okay, I'm going to find all kind of interesting stuff wow. like that. And then I found I, there wasn't any of that. <laughs> it was occasional brief little snippets. But what impressed me wow, was- What was that guy's name? Uh, Tom Molyneux. I think it's M-O-L-Y-N-E-A-U-X. And he was- uh, It's he, surprising to me yeah. that he- that, that we got, I don't want to spend too much time on it that's something we could go find out. But that you go to- mm-hmm. Uh, a, a place where, where there's no slavery, like slavery is abolished. Mm-hmm. You think he would get there? He would just walk out the door. Well, that's it. You know, it, it's for, I, I, I've heard that argument before, and this is way more than you want. But um, when England, uh, you know, passed a series of laws after what was called the Somerset case in, in the early 19th century, the argument that the courts used was that English air is too free for a slave to breathe. And there were slaves that were set freed when they were brought to mainland England by their master because the judge would rule, hey, you're, there's no slavery in England. Yeah. All, all the possessions we own, yeah. But you know, uh, but then once they abolished slavery, they were setting slaves free that, that arrived on British soil fairly regularly uh, in, in, in that time period. Didn't seem to happen that way <laughs> for Tom Molyneux, though. It was a little different situation. That is bizarre, yeah. man. And, and it actually it – actually, Kind of now that I think about it, it sets up the kind of the, the kind of argument of the book a little bit yeah. because um, a lot of people found it strange that a boxer like this guy's gonna gonna make a celebrity out of his slave boxer, travel with him, uh, let him fight people, fight white men. How, how that doesn't seem like it would fit with the slave system. But the critical thing I think that that helps get going with the book's argument is that so much of how white observers are going to look at the sporting activities and for that matter, subsistence activities uh, of slaves and then freed people of color is what is their kind of orientation toward me as the master? You know, so you certainly would never want to, hey, look, there's a there's a, a slave and he's over there beating the hell out of that white guy. Mm-hmm. Somebody shoot him. That's awful. That can't happen. But yet the same thing is going to happen in a boxing ring because the, the, the owner of Tom Mullen, was going to say, well, since he's my slave, he's an extension of me. Mm-hmm. That means I have the best boxer in the world. I have that status. So sort of more independent, assertive activities by slaves, if they're done for the benefit of the master, were seen as pretty okay. Who won the bout when you went and fought in England? Uh, of course, I'm going to blank on that. I, I think the English champion's name was Tom Cribb, C-R-I-B-B, and I think Cribb won. Hmm. I think. But I also think, now that I think of it, I think there was a, there was a return match. I'm not sure if it was in the U.S. or if it was there. We'll dig in. Yeah, we'll, it's, it's, it's a cool We'll, we'll, stay, it's a we'll cool stay in topic. your area of expertise. Yeah, it's a cool topic. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I started reading all these, these slave interviews, and uh, former slave interviews. And it was, you know, there's several thousand of them. And mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of fun to read them. And, and uh, I was stunned by how often hunting and fishing came up. And I, I brought that up to some professors at Pitt, and you know, some of them were like, well, okay, that might be, might be an interesting thing to study. And others were like, well, of course. It's a mundane daily activity. Who cares? There's probably no larger significance there. Uh, so the more I read, though, the more I kept thinking, you know, when, when they write about these things or talk about it in these interviews, they're not just saying, uh, wow, this is great. I could feed my family, yeah. which, which is huge. In and of itself, that's a huge thing, you know, for a slave. If a master is trying to reduce food costs and, you know, feeding slaves on the cheap, which most of them did, you know, slaves were often malnourished and it was, you know, it's not a, not a good scene in that regard. Um, so, you know, you could, um, you know, see a lot of slaves hunting and fishing, 
But they didn't just talk about the nutritional value or, you know, or the food or even the income from selling, you know, extra through some market activities. I started to run across more and more little mentions of, you know, little things like, uh, you know, I felt free or, you know, I felt like I was more of a man. Mm -hmm. uh, and those kind of mentions made me think, now there's something more here. It's not just about food. There's, there's, there's a story of independence. You know, you know, if you're off in the woods and, uh, you, you know, you're, you're hunting small game, um, you may or may not be doing something the master wants you to do. And if you're doing something he doesn't want you to do, well, then that's, you know, defying the system and, and that's significant. If you're feeding yourself and your family when the master is trying to keep you, you know, slightly malnourished so you're more dependent upon, upon him, then, then you're pushing back against the system. Um, I think what, what did it for me was I, I, I was reading um, – a published uh, diary from from a former slave named Charles Ball. I'm forgetting where he was. I want to say Georgia, but that might not be right. Um, but he had this long entry in his in his uh, memoirs because uh, he toured. You know, after after emancipation, he kind of toured the country and you know did did a lot of speaking about like giving experience. lectures. Yeah, which which was fairly common. Huh. Uh, not fairly common, but I mean, there's a a handful of pretty well known former slaves who traveled the country and. Uh, you know, first as abolitionists and then later as, you know, kind of reformers after emancipation. But Charles Ball wrote about um, the first time he got a shotgun because it was, you know, it was, it was prohibited. And uh, he just happened to, to meet someone who had an old rusty shotgun and he had a hiding place and he thought, I'll get this. And he quietly stashed it away and, really? and, be and began to hunt. And he talked about the first time he went out and hunted with, his, with this old shotgun that he found. And I remember the quote because it, it struck me so much. It was a short quote too, that helps. But he said, uh, but he said uh, I now began to live well and to feel myself in, at least in some measure an independent man. Huh. And that really struck, stuck, stuck with me. And I thought, well, if that kind of attitude is there, if it was seen as, as uh, by slaves as in some ways guaranteeing independence, while at the same time, it was seen as a thing from the master's point of view that benefited his operation. Like it sort of had both sides to it. I was really curious uh, how that would shake out after emancipation. Yeah. You know, basically like, you know, you know, if I'm, if I'm a slave owner and I can, uh, you know, you, oh, you want to go hunt and, and, and make some extra game for your family, go ahead. Look what a wonderful, awesome, benevolent yeah. master I am. I'm saving money on food provisions and, you know, this is great. What, what could go wrong? Right. But then from the slave's point of view, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeding myself in a way that you don't intend. I'm sneaking off a lot of times to, you know, check traps or hunt when I'm not supposed to, or, you know, go fish when I'm not supposed to, uh, engage in market activities that are usually not permitted for slaves. So for me, it's going to be more about asserting my, my independence, my mobility, my liberty. Um, so there's this really deep tradition of sort of, uh, different purposes, you know, sort of, you know, you want to go back to the very, you know, the, the older European part of the story. It's, you know, it's no different than, you know, the, the, the poor peasant hunting the king, the king's deer, yeah. you know, kind of same thing. Sure. You know, deer for, uh, you know, for a king, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to be granted as a privilege. It's, it's a way to control. It's a way to, to, uh, you know, show your standing in society. And as long as my slaves are doing it in such a way that doesn't mess me up, I am totally fine with it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I, I'll cultivate that image. I'll, I'll tell my friends, I have the best huntsman. I have the best dogs. I have the best equipment because it's an extension of me as a master because that was an important thing in the minds of, of uh, elite Southerners back then. Can you real quick hit on the word antebellum? Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Um, Just because I want to, I want to establish like sort of the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 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 timeline a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, the the basic definition of the word just means before the war. Um, but when we think about the antebellum period in the U.S., we we sort of think about sort of the period between the Constitution and the Civil War. That's sort of the, the antebellum period. And, and more specifically, I would say even once we get into the early nineteenth century. Um, that's usually what historians mean when they say antebellum. Yeah, like it's come to, it's like uh, that antebellum period, like that antebellum mm-hmm. became like the antebellum. Yeah, like capital A capital with all a. the cultural images and yeah. all that, yeah. Because your book spends a chapter mm-hmm. or so on the antebellum period mm-hmm. and then spends a lot of time on, mm-hmm. the hell's the, what's the opposite of antebellum? Uh, well, postbellum, I guess. You can say that. That's a little clunkier. Yeah, yeah people don't use postbellum. It's usually post-emancipation is kind of what okay, people yeah, okay. say in, in uh, these circles. Yeah. So uh, explain like what hunting and fishing would have looked like mm-hmm. for slaves. Like what, what kind of activities they were, like, not what it would have mm-hmm. looked like, but what were they actually doing? How are they getting mm-hmm. game? Well, I, the, the the kind of the key point I think for both slaves that engage in these activities and then and then freed persons after emancipation is that it's it's a hundred percent a story of what's effective and, and what can I do. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, there's very little concern for like, well, we got to use the proper sporting methods and we've got to make sure we you know, well, we can't hunt with fire. That would be wrong. No, it's like whatever worked, whatever we could do, because what mattered was the food. What yeah. mattered was game to sell if they were able to do that. So really, it was you know, anything you know, uh, any method, any animal that they could get. Um, what I think what's interesting about about that question in, in the antebellum period is because slaves were often limited in, in terms of what they could go after. You know, for example, you're not if you're if you're a slave and even if you have permission, you're probably not gonna go out and start shooting a bunch of deer because local planters are gonna say, Hey, what the heck are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's, that's not for you. You know? Uh, so they developed a, a pretty good reliance on small game. And that was just a matter of practical necessity. They were abundant. It was easy. They could set simple traps. You know, they could go out when they had free time on the weekends. And they had you know. dogs. Yeah, and, and dog, yeah, slave dogs were everywhere. It was, it was, it was just a you know part of the scene, you know, on, on plantations in the South, and huge part of of, of getting extra food. And you could, uh, you know, embrace every method imaginable. You know, in, in some states, slaves could hunt with firearms. If they had written permission from the master and if uh, the master purchased a bond, basically like, uh, okay, you want to have a slave with a gun to be an official huntsman for the plantation? Uh, we have a state law that says you've got to pay a, a $1,000 surety. So if something happens, if that slave does something with that gun that they're not supposed to, you got to pay us $1,000. No kidding. In other words, how secure are you that your slave can be trusted with this gun? So that's, it was that's rare. Some, that's some anti-2A stuff right there. Well, I mean, you could imagine, you know, you could imagine the, uh, the uh, concern about slaves with firearms. It was just, it was just not something Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's why, uh, that was one of the things that surprised me about mm-hmm. the book is um, – I would assume like, well, of course not. Mm-hmm. Then you mentioned cases where people, w- that, that a slave would be allowed, mm-hmm. would have, at, you know, the the resource provided, mm-hmm. be able, allowed to go into the woods and hunt. Yeah. Well, which it, brings know, up all these, like, mm-hmm. which just brings up all these practical questions. Um, And I know it's kind of beyond the scope of what you did, but uh, how hard, like, you, you, uh, how, you, you couldn't just go into the woods and then just vanish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're separated by hundreds of miles of, Territory. It's mm-hmm. just—it's just hard to imagine someone kind of fluidly moving 
out of supervision into supervision. Yeah. Well, Going out at night to mm-hmm. hunt, right? You're, you're not supervised. You're not. Mm-hmm. But then it's just it's just impossible and practical. I mean, you have a family, mm-hmm. probably. So you, you'd be abandoning your family to take off um, and all kinds of other obstacles. But mm-hmm. just kind of, you almost wish you could look back and see mm-hmm. sort of the parameters of it, you know? Was going two miles away, like, no way. I can go two miles mm-hmm. away. You can go down to the river bottom, but, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine sort of epic excursions yeah. with the limited time that slaves had. You know, because, you know, if you're in, you know, say, you know, parts of the South where they're growing tobacco or cotton, um, you know, these are what, what they call the gang system. These were just like huge groups of slaves in the field, worked by an overseer, you know, working for when the sun comes up until when the sun goes down. There's not a lot of time or energy, you know, for these kind of activities. You know, Sundays, you know, you had to give slaves Sunday off because, you know, good Christians. Uh, so uh, Sundays would be a day you could do it. If you had young kids that uh, that weren't working out in the field yet, they could certainly go out there and fish and, you know, trap small game and things like that. But a lot of it depended upon where you were. You know, if you were a slave in like South Carolina, for example, and you're on what they call the task system, where, you know, rice cultivation and some other crops tended to, to, rather than just, hey, get as many slaves as you can, put them out in the field and work them with an overseer. There's too many individual small tasks that need to be done in, say, rice cultivation. Mm -hmm. So instead, you would just make a list of all the work that needed to be done, give individual slaves individual tasks, and then tell them, as soon as you're finished, you're done for the day. Mm -hmm. So then slaves in those parts of the South had motivation. Finish. That was called maxim- a task system. The task system, yeah. And you were then, you be, then became a specialist at a task. Well, not necessarily a specialist, but you were basically told on a daily basis. Oh, what you so daily, not like, yeah. not like a, this is your deal for the year. No, it's like make a daily list. Here's what I, I want you to do. As soon as you're done, you can go do your own thing. Um, of course, the catch was that was a system where, you know, if I could have the time to go off and, and hunt or fish or do whatever on my own time, uh, the system was built to put in some pretty severe punishments if I stepped out of line. Yeah. So in, in the gang system, there was less time for these activities. They still did them, but there was less time. And then in the Tassin, there's a lot more time, but slaves were limited by not wanting to push it too much because the, you know, the, the task system had the most brutal punishments of, of any, you know, slavery system in, in the U S anyway. Yeah. Well, um, in the book, you have so many quotes from interviews, mm-hmm. right? So like slaves recounting mm-hmm. experiences, newspaper articles, a lot of editorials, mm-hmm. letters to the editor, opinion pieces. There's some magazines that just come up again and again mm-hmm. and again and again. These old sporting mm-hmm. magazines. Yeah, Forest and Stream yep. and you know Spirit of the Times. Yeah, from yeah. the 1800s mm-hmm. and then cartoons and other things, but you do get, uh, you kind of get a sense of the things people did would be, uh, and talking about that, not having guns would be that they would hunt with hounds and tree possums and raccoons mm-hmm. and then need to go get the thing. Mm-hmm. You can't shoot it down. So you'd climb up mm-hmm. and get it. And then just certain like practices, uh, I was surprised by that you'd catch a possum and bring it back live, mm-hmm. you know, and how they'd cut a stick to hold its tail. Yeah. And you kind of like walk around, like bring it home, like a, you know, like ready to go, like a live mm-hmm. creature and then netting, fish netting, running lines. Yeah. I mean, I, I've come across I mean, any method you could think of. Yeah. I mean, they clearly they talk about trapping, but you know, different people talk about trapping. Uh-huh. 
Oh, they used to poison streams to, you know, get as many fish at once as well, they could right. and fish with dynamite. Slaves couldn't do that because, you know, you'd have a hard time getting dynamite. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that points to one of the real kind of uh, divisions, points of division uh, in, in, you know, kind of the hunting and fishing, you know, kind of the discussions of emerging conservation, you know, it comes along in the 19th century is... Um, you know, poor people, whether they're slaves or, you know, whoever, uh, that are independent, uh, beyond slaves, you know, they don't care about, you know, oh, I'm only going to use the best weapons and the, and the most pure sporting methods. And I'm going to make sure that uh, all the codes are, no, they, they want, they want to catch as much as they can. They want that freezer full of, you know, 80 bags of walleye or whatever yeah. it is. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, you know, they're really focusing on, on, on methods that work. So the interesting thing that happens is, um, you know, when, when you read about, the hunting methods of, of you know, of, of lower class people from the perspective of elites, you know, during slavery, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're a little hard on it and, you know, they, they criticize it, but it's like, yeah, of course, you know, poor, they hunt, you know, they need the food. And, we won't give them guns. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, <laughs> we don't have to do that, but yeah. the poor people do. And, uh, but what's interesting and the, the question that kind of got me thinking about it, you know, for the dissertation and then eventually the book was, okay, so they're not too critical of these activities now. But what happens when the boards reset with emancipation? You know, you, you know, oh, I'm okay with a slave having a gun as long as I can think of them as an extension of me. Mm-hmm. Or I'm okay with them going off on their own and hunting and fishing because it benefits my operation. I don't mind that they have these skills and, you know, people starting, are starting to think of African-American sportsmen as among the very best in the region. I'm okay with that because of slavery. What I really wondered was, is that going to switch is that gonna is that gonna remain consistent, or is there gonna be a, a mental shift on the part of elite white Southerners? And then on the, from the slave perspective, I was really curious if if emancipation would mean, well, these are the extra things we had to do because the system of slavery wouldn't allow us to take care of ourselves. Otherwise, will they still indulge those oh, traditions yeah, as would, much would as they the did? Desire to participate still going yeah. on. Yeah. So I was really curious how things would shake out you know, after emancipation. And that's, and then as I mentioned to Corinne the other day, um, yeah, I, I was prepared to write a dissertation on just the question of slavery and, and hunting and fishing. And then somebody wrote another book about it and I cursed a little bit and then set my sights on the post-emancipation period. So, oh, really? I mean, yeah. I, I hate to almost ask this because we're talking about your book, mm-hmm. but what, what book is oh, that? Oh, no, it's a great book and he's a great guy actually. Uh, so the book's called Bathed in Blood. It's a great title. It's called Bathed in Blood, Hunting and Mastery in the Old South. And a guy named Nick Proctor wrote oh, that. That's a titular Really title. interesting Bathed book. Bathed in yeah. Blood. Huh. And his, his and study kind of set with, me that up. that deals with, with slavery hunting and not the issues yeah, that came out yeah, of Yeah, yeah. It ends, it ends uh, you know, with, with slavery still around. Well, let, let's jump to emancipation. And I'll, I'll set up another thing that is very obvious. It's very obvious, but I just hadn't given it much thought. Mm-hmm. Would be that. After the war and after mm-hmm. Lincoln's emancipation, mm-hmm. um, there was still demand mm-hmm. for cotton. There was still demand for rice, right? So still, people still needed resources. Mm-hmm. I never thought about uh, just the simple practical thing of what do you do now that you need to attract laborers mm-hmm. and the tension that that set up. Yeah, that was, that was you know, in the late 1860s, that was like kind of the – like the question, and they called it the labor question, right? Like, oh, what, really? It's got do, right to the point. Yeah, what do, what do we do now? We, you know, we, we, we need to find a way to make sure that, that we have enough labor. Uh, federal government was intensely interested in that. And of course, 
I don't, I don't want to sound like a liberal that says anti-government things. I'm not supposed to do that, right, as a liberal. But um, federal government kind of screwed this up right after emancipation. They were thinking, okay, we need work. You know, we need cotton. We need the southern economy to get going again, which makes sense. But we know that former slaves don't want to work uh, for their former masters. And we know that former masters, you know, don't really want to do this either. But we have to get the southern economy going. So what the federal government mandated during the Reconstruction period was that, uh, look, former slaves, you will go back to work. And former masters, you will pay cash. Mm -hmm. That's just all there is to it. They're free. You're going to pay them. They're wage workers now. So you're going to work and you're going to pay cash. When you say that people didn't want to go work for their former master, mm -hmm. do you mean like specifically for their former master or do you mean for former masters? Well, it, both. Like it, some people were like, I'm, I'm done. My days of laboring, you know, for you are over. Mm -hmm. And some people just hit the road and, and split and that was that. And other people, it was more like, hey, you know, uh, now that I'm free and I, you know, I'm, I want to stay here, it's home. You know, many people did. But, you know, the guy that owned me was a real tough piece of work. I don't want to work for him. So if I have mobility, I'm going to go somewhere else and find someone else to work with. So you started to see this kind of mobility and people yeah. crisscrossing parts of the South. Did you just, just curious, did you encounter cases where a slave was emancipated and then turned around and the master's like, all right, I give up. And then like puts them on payroll. And they stay and work for the same place? Uh, yeah, not, not – that happened quite a bit. Man, that, what a when strange, it, strange experience. It, it's a very strange experience. And, and it's easy to use that, that fact to sort of, I think, run off in the wrong direction. I've heard people say like, oh, well, then there must have been a lot of oh, slaves who were fine with it. They must it. have liked it. Yeah, they love their master. It's like, well, <laughs> so. no, it's like you live in, in southern Mississippi, you know, you know, migrating to the north, which, you know, a huge percentage of the black population does later. But in the 1860s and 1870s, this is where we live. This is where home and family is. You know, this is this is where I'm at. So, you know, I've got to just make the best mm -hmm. I can. And if my best option is, all right, I'm going to go back to work for the same guy, you know, then I will. But the problem was with that, with that contract system that forced by the federal government is uh, former slave owners didn't have any money because the war just, you know, wrecked the South. And then former slaves by and large, would rather not be forced to go back to work for the same people that they, they wanted. Yeah. They wanted more freedom. So that contract system kind of limped along for a few years with everybody hating it. Did they establish and, a, like a, a minimum wage equivalent? Yeah. I don't, I don't know much about that, but I know the individual states did that, you know, because there were, you know, the South was divided into military districts. Like a and, day's work is worth three cents. Or, yeah. yeah. Th there was sort of a kind of a general thought about that. Yeah. And to get to get to get back to the to the, the hunting and fishing question, um, the sort of the solution that emerged to this contract problem was the sharecropping system, right? People, you know, people always talk about how bad sharecropping was, and it was, and you could argue that it wrecked the southern economy by the 1950s. But at the time it came out, it was a great compromise. Like, oh, so I don't have to work when you say, and I can pull my wife out of the field if I want to. And I control what I grow and when I grow it and I can sell it and I can keep a lot of the money. Great. And then the master's like, oh, so I'll give you the tools and you can work the land and you give me a cut of it. Okay. Yeah, that sounds fine. That, that's a good description, but just like very quickly hit like what sharecropping is. So basic idea behind sharecropping is, you know, so if I'm a landowner, I don't have the capital to pay wages to workers. What I can do is I can say, okay, look, I'm going to break my, my, my uh, farm up into 10 different parcels. 
I'm going to sign a contract with 10 different families and they'll work those parts of my acreage and uh, in exchange for a share of the crop. So, you know, whether it was, you know, a quarter or a third, whatever the individual contract was. Mm-hmm. So, um, like the, the landowner gets a third or the farmer gets a third? It, it depended. Okay. Usually, usually it was, it was the landowner. Um, and the idea was, I'm going to front you all the tools, equipment, yep. you know, livestock, whatever you need. And then at the end of the season, sell the crop, pay me back out of the profits. I keep my proceeds. You keep your proceeds. Everybody's happy. Yeah. And former slaves thought, well, that sounds great because what I'll do is I'll save money up year to year and then eventually I'll buy my own land and then the you know, American dream. Um, and about 25% of, of former slaves managed to, to acquire their own land, which is not a great percentage. The problem is uh, that's a good system when it's a good year. Prices are high. There's no bull weevil. Um, you know, you, you know, there's no drought, you know, whatever. But years where there's bad prices, bad weather, bad crop yield for some reason, uh, you're not going to make enough money even to pay back what you owe. So you wind up seeing this kind of cycle of perpetual debt. Yeah. And it winds up being a disastrous economic system. But sort for of- For everybody involved. For everybody involved, yeah. The landowners weren't getting rich. No, landowners saw, you know, really, really valuable land. Uh, especially, you know, the, the, really, the real story here is the, the international cotton market. You know, you start to see cotton from India and a few other places mm-hmm. come on the market in the okay. late 19th century, and prices just go in the toilet. And pretty soon, the economy of the South is in, is in shambles. But we still see, you know, former slave owners that don't want to pay wages. They just, I'm not acknowledging this. I don't want to pay money to these these guys. This isn't right. This isn't the way it used to be. And then former slaves uh, still wanted that freedom. So even though the system was inefficient. From the former slave's point of view, it beat the hell out of slavery. Yeah. And then from the former master's point of view, at least you weren't shelling out, you know, hard cash to your laborers. So it was a share, it was a system that was supposed to be a really good thing for the South, but it didn't work out that way. And then they in your book you describe this this thing that becomes a like a very articulated problem. Um and there's magazine articles written about mm-hmm. it, like how to deal with the problem. But people start Landowners mm-hmm. start pointing fingers at things, conditions, behaviors, activities that are enabling people to not come work. Yeah. And among these is this propensity for like going out and shooting your own food. Mm-hmm. Like that's a problem because yeah. if they weren't doing that, then they'd be more obligated to come work for me. Absolutely. You know, um, the, the, the title of the last chapter of the book, the one about the conservation, which I guess we'll get to, but um, uh, the title of that last chapter is When He Should Be Between the Plow Handles, mm-hmm. which basically, you know, there's the, the so many, you know, mentions I came across in sporting magazines and you know, legal debates and things like that, you know, really pointing at, at you know, self-subsistence activities is a real problem. You know, like, hey, if this guy can can feed himself and his family without working for me, what kind of leverage does that give me? Yeah. yeah so I need, I need more control. And uh, it's also eventually going to provide a pretty handy kind of cover for convincing reluctant Southerners to embrace conservation laws. We're not really going after you. We're going after former slaves because they're the ones that we're concerned about. Yeah. So it, it also, and this is maybe too much at once here, but the other thing that, that's, that's really interesting to me about that, that transition, immediate transition from slavery to freedom is, um, you know, slaves, you know, reliance on small game, on whatever method worked, on, you know, uh, effective, you know, uh, hunting and fishing. 
Uh, that was understood at the time by white observers. Like, yeah, well, they're slaves. They, they're, they're limited in what they can do. And that's the stuff they hunt. And, you know, they make the most of it. And then some of those same observers, when they're writing in the post-emancipation period, it's no longer, well, slaves privilege practical sporting methods. It's, well, Africans, they're just by design, they're incapable of appreciating the finer sporting traditions uh, of the elites. So they do small game and they, they don't understand sporting methods and honor and things like that. Yeah. So it becomes a handy way of kind of hanging some you know, racial stereotypes. The thought is, it was at the time, if... Former slaves have complete freedom to just feed themselves, you know, however they want to. Not only does that hurt our ability to control labor, but the interesting thing is if I've got a really fantastic slave plantation huntsman, I can tell my friends about this guy. I can brag about it. I, I know we're going to have great supplies of meat and I, it's just going to be a really good thing for the plantation. But I don't want to acknowledge this guy's sporting prowess after emancipation. It's like after emancipation, here's a guy whose abilities threaten my operation. Someone whose skill flies in the face of, of the emerging idea that white sportsmen are the best and African sportsmen, African-American sportsmen are a, a level lower. So if you want to maintain the sort of white supremacy that's sort of uh, emerging as the Jim Crow period you know, begins to, to deepen... Um, all of a sudden, these same activities that for some people weren't that really big of a problem, they're a big problem now. Because not only does it, does it uh, you know, the, the master-slave relationship is gone because of, uh, because of emancipation. And the, the methods that we used to celebrate slaves using, we are now seeing as, as uh, dangerous to the supply of game, which is eventually going to be really bad for tourism. Because once the southern ag economy goes down in the late 1880s and 90s, Tourism becomes their big their big source of revenue. So there's the, what was sort of a quaint feature of the antebellum period. Oh, loyal slaves out in the woods hunting because I allow it. Yeah. After emancipation, it's oh, independent people out in the woods making a living away from me, hunting in ways that I don't think are appropriate and that could even be dangerous because, you know, because of firearms. You know what? Uh, can- <clears throat> oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask. I had a question re- related to that, and just if you can explain it with that, because it, it was cool to write like before during antebellum period, right? To have like a slave that was a great huntsman, and you you talk about how when people would come in mm-hmm. from other places, how that was part of the whole experience mm-hmm. to go hunt in the south, would to be to hunt, but you but but it, it would include these black slaves did that mm-hmm. did that same feeling continue after emancipation like for for, for just the general like mm-hmm. hunting tourism industry did it, so it was like a double conundrum mm-hmm. at that point right because they still wanted them for that but again they did they they would maybe have to start paying them or mm-hmm. or do you get my question yeah, oh like, I, I do and it's a good one so the, the double conundrum issue it's it's a really tricky one because you know think about it from the point of view uh, uh, of a slave owner. And, you know, so you've got uh, slaves working for you that are in, engaging in all of these activities and you have no problem with it, right? Maybe, you know, some, in some cases they did. There were masters who didn't want their slaves to hunt because they were like, no, too much independence. I want them dependent on me. I don't want them out running around. But if you were a slave owner who said, um, nah, I can't trust my slaves to go out and hunt and fish, somebody might say, well, why can't you trust 
your slaves? Are you a crappy slave owner? I mean, if you were a good master, you'd be able to let them do these things and it would be to your benefit. Mm-hmm. So there was almost this sense of, you know, it, they're an extension of me, so it's okay. But that, that, that connection is broken by emancipation. And the interesting thing is it becomes more important after emancipation is what I discovered. Because um, in the minds of, say, Northern tourists, you know, the, the antebellum period doesn't really become the antebellum period until, you know, later in the 19th century. When we start to get that sort of gone with the wind, rose-colored glasses, romantic notion of what the South used to be. And that was really appealing to Northern visitors. You know, countries industrializing, changing rapidly. You know, what's, what's traditional in the country? Well, the antebellum South. Quaint plantations, you know, women in fancy dresses, you know, all, the, all yeah. those images. All the chivalry. And, and, exactly. Yeah. You know, and part and parcel of that memory for a lot of Americans was the presence of people of color. So what, what uh, landowners in the South started to realize, you know, after the Civil War is, boy, the land's not very good in some spots here for plantation agriculture anymore. But we got all these Northerners that want to come down here and consume the Old South. Hunt or at least, quail. Yeah, they want to hunt. They want to, you know, they want to get out there and feel and feel like a Southerner of old. And from the white perspective back then, what better way to feel like a Southerner of old than to have black laborers attending you just like white masters did before emancipation. So it was almost like recreating that scene. And it really became, you know, a way for white Southerners who were especially former slaves to, to kind of convince themselves, okay, the world is still right. It's still us here. We're still served by people of color, just like the old days. Um, so on the so one hand- yeah. So they were just like, at that point, did they become hired like help? Because it was post emancipation, yeah. When when you started to see, and then I get, and can you on the on the heels of that, can you answer like what did it look like then? Did did the African Americans like work as guides, mm-hmm. or were they like cooks, or like mm-hmm. how did it? How what did that little scene look like when someone mm-hmm. from the north came down to mm-hmm. to hunt or sure. whatever? Well, that really started kind of in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, and. Uh, you started to see the kind of the, the, the trickle of, of visitors to the South uh, that were interested in going there specifically for sporting reasons. Uh, it really turns into a flood. It's just a huge number of people start going there. And the reason that is, is because as the, the farmland, especially rice, rice was one of the crops that was just becoming really difficult. Uh, and then coastal cotton was also becoming a tough sell. Um, so it, it hit some of these landowners. I bet we could sell our land to a developer who wants to, you know, make a tourist retreat out of this, or I could even run it myself as a, as a, as a sporting operation. And what they found is when these visitors started to come down, they expected black laborers. That was the way to complete the scene. And so basically you name it. I mean, you would have uh, people of color on plantations to serve as cooks, guides, you know, kind of basic laborers, people that carry the tents, people that carry the guns, people that manage the dogs, uh, right up into, you know, the, the larger outfits would have, you know, choruses and performers of color that could entertain their guests while they were there. So it was almost like blackness was a big part of the scene. And I came across hundreds and hundreds of references in national sporting magazines that are basically like, oh man, you've got to go down to Mississippi. It's like 1830 down there. It's amazing. So you can really see the racism and the sort of racial attitudes alive and well. 
And that was something else that surprised me when I switched to the post-emancipation period. I didn't realize how much race would be discussed in national sporting oh, publications. It was, the, it was incredible. It's one of the things that blew my mind about it. And like, if you're listening to us talk about this, you have to understand that when you go read the book, it's not like he's, it's not like Scott, the author, is drawing wild conclusions. I mean, it's all, it's documented. It's like all laid out, mm-hmm. quote for quote for quote, like what people said, how mm-hmm. things were advertised, how they described their experiences, what the articles wrote about. Yeah. And it's amazing. Um, it's there, funny. You you wouldn't now, with, you wouldn't be able to read out loud newspaper articles. Yeah. Because of the use of certain language. That was just talked about blatantly. Like, you almost kind of can't believe what you're reading when you read some people's attitudes toward other human beings that they decided was fit to write in a letter to the editor to the hunting and fishing mag. Yeah. it's uh, they're, they're, And just say insane, like, not even, not, I shouldn't call it insane, just say blatantly, like, blatant, horrific, racist stuff mm-hmm. in a letter to the editor pointing the finger at certain individuals who don't conform to whatever kind of hunting and fishing standards they had. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater applying for tags each year in the west can be daunting yeah i apply for everything everywhere it's daunting you have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply well this is a thing of the past now onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters this tool helps organize the data that matters makes comparing hunt options easy and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it.
Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't, I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Another thing, and you actually bring this up, is people struggling with the the prowess Mm -hmm. of some former slaves who who they would admit, like, this guy's the best hunter ever. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, then, which, which is okay to say. Oh, they'd do a juggling in act. the antebellum period. They'd right? be like, yeah, it, or they might describe like, oh man, this guy is really something to watch in the woods. You know, always knows where the game is. But at the end of the day, he's a black guy. Yeah, you know, it was like they, they like they just come out and like kind of like balance it out. They mm-hmm. want to like there's a there's an element of praise, and then there's an element of like context. Yeah. And then I and think you, had to, you, you see people just struggle with it. Yeah, my my. There, so real quick, there's there's two two little episodes I'll mention. One is on the first thing you mentioned about these letters to the editors of sporting magazines. There was a a really well known uh, sportsman in the 19th century named Emerson Huff. I think it's pronounced Huff or Hal. I'm not sure which one, but he's from Chicago, and he wrote pretty frequently to to Forest and Stream, and <laughs> uh, he uh, was writing about his thoughts on the very best place to go to to hunt. And he said, you know, for my money, you got to go to the South. And he talked about the game and the, 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 the conditions and sort of the technical stuff. But then he said, and you know, the best thing about it is there are all these former slaves, he said Negroes, with all these Negroes, and they're great. And my God, they're incredible servants because that's, you know, that's their, their history. And uh, it's just the best. You go down there and they do whatever you say. And it's just the most amazing experience. You feel so served and you feel like a king. And then he wrapped up his editorial by saying, um, you know, if I could have one of the fondest wishes of my heart fulfilled, and I'm quoting somehow the quotes in my head, if I could have one of the fondest wishes of my heart fulfilled, I would export export four thirds of Chicago Negroes and I wouldn't send them to Liberia either. In other words, I'd love to send them back down to the South where they still know about white supremacy and hierarchy and uh, Uh and servitude. And that sort of praising of of the old South was really common in, in sporting publications nationally. It was a huge part of the draw. And they're there to hunt quail and deer, right? Quail and deer were two of, were two of the big ones. Uh, black bear in the deep South yeah. was a big one. But that was, you know, that was a big money. Uh, you know, usually the, the, the elite elites were the ones who went on big excursions for black bear. But uh, yeah, quail and, and deer were sort of the big ones. Explain the gun rights issue back then because um, the Second Amendment was – well understood, mm. but man, was not applied uniformly. No, not at all. And that's really one, you know, really one of the, one of the big, uh, you know, one of the big sticking points, you know, as you could imagine, because when you start to get, uh, 
you know, there's this big tension that emerges, right, uh, after emancipation in the South. So we started to see the emergence of this really popular resort tourism based on, on hunting and fishing, particularly hunting in the South. And that's making a lot of money for, for Southern landowners and Southern, you know, proprietors. And that really kind of puts certain demands on them. One is to, to make sure there's an available supply of black labor to satisfy, you know, the image the public wants. The other thing is we got to protect the supply of game. Because if, if this kind of tourism is going to be where our livelihood comes from for the foreseeable future, we've got to protect it. So Southern started talking about the need for conservation laws and the need for, you know, state licensing or bag limits or, you know, restrictions on guns, things like that. And most average Southerners, especially non-elites, were like, hell no, no way. We want no part of this. And there was massive resistance to it. So conservation in the South lags behind really the whole rest of the country. You're saying, so just make sure I got this mm. right. Poor, like poor white Southerners were not hip to game regulations mm. being handed down mm. from elite mm. plantation operators. No, not at all. Because, you know, really the, you know, removing race from the equation for a second, when, when hunting sort of arrives in, in, in the colonial period, uh, and not and everyone hunted, I mean, it was, you know, everyone did it because it was a practical thing. But when elite Southerners, when plantation owners began to hunt, they were not shy or elusive at all about saying, we're doing this because aristocrats hunt. So we're going to hunt fox and we're going to hunt stags and we're going to pretend like we're just old school European privileged nobles. That's how they set it up. And poor Southerners knew that. And they were deeply suspicious of any attempt to regulate uh, access to or methods for acquiring game because they thought it was just old school, these elite guys trying to control things so we don't get our fair share. Uh, so when the process, you know, in the early 20th century then becomes, okay, these pain in the ass poor whites are resisting these conservation laws. They just don't get it, why it's valuable and why it's necessary. So, okay, fine. What can we do to convince them? Hey everyone, here's the race card. <laughs> let's let's put this right in front of your face. You know, hey, if you want to control the black population, make sure they're in their place. Make sure they're not owning guns they shouldn't have. Make sure they're not killing all the big game that we want to kill. We need these conservation laws. We're not coming after you. We promise. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of using well, race. How as a is wedge. that? How is that actually? How is that actually articulated? Well, it's interesting. It, so or, articulated or, or enforced or. It's, it's rarely, if ever, articulated in the law. And that's one of the interesting things about the whole post-war period. Uh, you know, as Jim Crow becomes, um, you know, more and more powerful, you know, for example, by 1900, you know, African-Americans are largely, you know, disfranchised across the South. Hardly any black people are voting because of the new state constitutions. But those new state constitutions don't say black people can't vote. They say you can't vote if your grandfather couldn't vote or you have to pay a $10 poll tax to vote, or a bunch of measures designed to keep black people from voting. And the same thing with the conservation laws. You're not gonna see, um, you know, you have to pay $10 to, uh, to buy an in-state hunting permit now uh, so we can keep people of color in check. It basically just says $10, you know, in-state license. I think it was South Carolina in like 1906 or whatever, passed a $10 licensing fee. Man, what's that in today's dollars? Or no, I'm sorry, it was a dollar for, okay. for a dollar for residents, $10 for non-residents. Okay. That's what it was. And they, they didn't mention race at all in the law, but it would be a simple matter of, uh, okay, you got to go buy your permit. And then a white person shows up to buy the permit and they go, I don't worry about it. 
or or uh, they're out in the woods and uh, they come across a person of color doesn't have a permit. Well, I'm going to find them. Poor white guy, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of the enforcement where the, the flexibility was there. But then it's funny because that might be the case in in terms of how it's codified, mm-hmm. like how it's actually spelled out mm-hmm. in the law. But then as you demonstrate in your book, which just with, again, people in their own mm-hmm. voices, giving their own perspectives, mm-hmm. at the same time, it's being articulated in public opinion mm-hmm. very differently, very explicitly. Yeah, absolutely. And like I, they're explicit. Yeah. Like what the, the, the people are explicit about what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. When, even, um, if the, even if the rules they draft aren't explicit, but you look at like the people pushing for it and they, they make no bones about it. Oh, absolutely. Like what they want to yeah. see happen. You know, South Carolina is a good example. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. Bl- I want to say it was Richardson was his last name. Anyway, he was he was chief game warden for South Carolina, and this is really early 20th century. And basically, he's on a, a PR campaign. He's traveling across the state, speaking at farmers clubs and sportsmen organizations, talking about this new licensing system and some of these new laws. And even though the law itself doesn't say it, you don't find those descriptions in any kind of official government publication. But I have some transcripts that I quote in the book uh, uh, from some of those speeches he gives. And he explicitly says, you know, look, we want to get guns out of the hands of former slaves. And these kind of laws is kind of the only way we can do it that looks remotely constitutional. Mm -hmm. So help us out here, folks. We got to play the game. It was really obvious when it was spoken. Because, you know, and the reason they didn't bother putting it in, they didn't want to put it in the laws is the sort of big picture fear that hung over uh, all Southerners back then as Jim Crow was emerging is that the federal government would come back. You know, when Reconstruction ended and military uh, rule ended and, this, you know, the North pulled out of the South and states were given control back uh, of their individual operations, you know, the, the, the sentiment was basically, okay, let, let's find a comfortable level of control that we can assert over people of color in a way that doesn't risk the federal government getting back involved yeah. again. We don't want them in the civil rights business. And it worked, right? Because the federal government sends troops, you know, to, in the South with a civil war and they withdraw in 1877. Federal troops don't go to the South to enforce black civil rights again until 1955 with Central High School in Little Rock when they integrated. Uh, so they were trying to, to to get what they wanted without being too overt about it. But at the yeah. local level, they were just, you know what this is about. Please support this. And even that, it was a tough sell. I mean, it was a, I, I thought about doing another book on just the conservation movement in the South. Uh, yeah, I still will. But um, that, that's, kind of, that's where my next question mm-hmm. goes. Because if there's a thing I feel like you don't, not that you don't get it right, mm-hmm. but I feel like you, you didn't like accentuate it enough. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I already told you I didn't read it in its uh-huh. entirety, but I did a thorough, like, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe you'll just prove me, hopefully you'll just prove me that I'm wrong. Is it the same conversations, though? When you get into the early 1900s, mm-hmm. the same conversations, even outside of, let me say that better, the same conversations about certain hunting practices, mm-hmm. the same conversations about commercial market hunting, mm-hmm. the same conversations about bag limits, the same conversations about netting game are all happening in the North. Absolutely, yeah. Where there is not a master slave mm-hmm. history, Right. But it's simply people like Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And, and sure, you, you know, I, I don't, I'm not aware of it. There's no doubt it exists that Roosevelt mm-hmm. probably had, as a, someone alive when he was alive, probably had racist sentiments. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there's probably books written about it. Mm-hmm. But he was, from a hunting perspective, mm-hmm. and he's, there, here's a celebrated conservation figure, okay? Mm-hmm. 
from a hunting perspective, he's like, if we're going to continue to hunt into the future, mm-hmm. if it's going to be a thing, then we need to put up real serious guardrails. Mm-hmm. And we're going to introduce all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. licenses, seasons, ban on commercial sale of wild game, right? Mm-hmm. And really clamp down or would kiss the whole thing goodbye. Yeah. So I don't know, like, and maybe maybe you can tell me that you did. I don't know that if you're accurately kind of like divorcing that, mm-hmm. that, it, that it perhaps wasn't entirely like a racially motivated uh-huh. thing, that it was coming from a legitimate place, mm-hmm. that oh, yeah. we have to stop the bleeding. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to suggest, I don't, I don't, in the book either, I don't do this. I'm not trying to suggest that conservation was completely a racial thing, but rather that in the South, there was this racial dimension, particularly mm-hmm. in, in, in the, the selling it to the general public. Oh, but and, what's, and, what's and you make, yeah, you make yeah. that, ca- and again, mm-hmm. you make that case clear mm-hmm. just through letting people say, say their own thing. Mm-hmm. Like you put down, here's what's said, here's what's said, here's what's said, like you lay that out well. Mm-hmm. Um, the motivation was there, but it's just like, I look at I'm like, man, but the exact same things were being said mm-hmm. elsewhere, but they just weren't selling it that way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that though, because and I, in uh, interest of full disclosure, I'll, I'll just, you know, just to get it out. I don't want this to be a, a freezer full of fish uh, issue. Uh, I am a big fan of the conservation model. I think the conservation system that we developed in that period is one of the great achievements of of mm-hmm. the American system really is. I really believe that. Um, this is side trip, but I mean, like if I got to choose between a conservation model and a wallet off and nobody can touch it model, the conservation model is better just in my mind. Um, but what's interesting when you look at how conservation was sold in other parts of the country, there was a racial angle to it, but it wasn't African-Americans. You know, I, I've read articles, you know, complaining about uh, the need for tougher laws in the West, and they're talking about Native Americans mm. that are abusing things, and they're the reason we have to pass this. Yeah, uh, yeah. In New York this State. This is really funny, because we recently had an uh-huh. episode with a Hmong uh-huh. hunter, and I talked to him about um, just the conversations I've had with people mm-hmm. where it's like, well, you know who kills all the game? Uh-huh. It's the Hmong guys. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was it was it was European immigrants in New York State, right? Up okay. in uh, up in the Catskills, you know, it was like, oh, these immigrants are gunning all the game down, and so it seemed like it was just well, a you kind know of where, a, I, where I grew up. It's just that people that were poorer than you mm-hmm. um, were by def if they're poorer than you, by definition, they're more likely to be game hogs, yeah, or poachers, yeah. Someone probably someone certainly thought you were a poacher, and then you thought the next guy down the line. He was the poacher. Mm. It was very class-based. Oh, yeah. And, and that, that is what, what struck me uh, initially, you know, leaving race out, out of the equation for a second. When I first started reading all these sporting publications so intensely, I was amazed at the, the obvious class dimensions at work here. And mm. the tension in the individual sporting, pub, even like in Force and Stream, that was written about a lot. Like, who does this thing really serve? If, if this, is this about America and democracy and open access? In which case, hey, rich guy, you shouldn't always get the system you want. And then the elites would say, hey, if you want to preserve this system you know, for future generations, we've got to start being more strict about this. And some of the people on the, on the lower class end of things were like, no, nah, we're just not going to buy that. And it seems like in different parts of the country – they needed a little extra nudge from from the boogeyman, right? If you're afraid of, if you live in the West and Native Americans are your big nuisance, they're the problem. If yeah. Italian immigrants in New York, it's uh, Hispanic immigrants in Arizona. 
it, it's an easy way of you know getting a little extra support for what you're trying to see by kind of racializing it. That was pretty common, actually. Yeah, identifying the people that just don't get it. Yeah, and it does, it doesn't diminish you know the value of the conservation laws, um, but it just shows that you know who are the convenient scapegoats that are available, and definitely in the South, the the main scapegoat uh, was African Americans, especially because they had. They had two argumentative tracks they could take with people that were, you know, let's say I'm a, I'm a poor, uh, poor white and I'm just not buying into this, this licensing system. I could, I could say, look, you know, they'd say to me in, in, in turn, like, look, one, this is about control. We're trying to keep guns out of the hands of people of color, keep them working for us. And on the other hand, this is about protecting our new tourist economy. We have got to protect this because the region will collapse if we don't preserve this. So it was sort of a uh, kind of a double whammy. You know, there was a reason to make sure that as much as possible, if African-Americans are going to have a big place in the Southern sporting field, it's got to be in a subordinate place. Mm-hmm. Working for us, not independent. And if they are hunting and fishing independently, let's set up a system where they are limited to small game. We get rid of methods that they prefer that we don't like, and we control it as much as humanly possible. So again, it goes back to that issue of how far away from the white observer are they? Yeah. They're working for me or they're doing things I approve of, fine. But when they use it to avoid work or where they're you know, doing you know, methods that I don't approve of, then it's a problem. You know, one area where the double standard, I think, uh, came through real clear is you spent a little bit of time talking about, I think it was kind of more in the immediate post-war years, that you'd have people go out in the swamps mm-hmm. and basically set up camp encampments, families camped, just living off the land, man. Mm-hmm. You can imagine it'd be easy to romanticize that, right? Off in the swamp, living off mm-hmm. the land. But man, folks did not like that. Yeah. That was like, holy, what is the world coming to? Yeah. Th- th- there were so many interesting uh, visuals that came out of that research. You know, you might read about a very elaborate hunt that is essentially, you know, a bunch of locals. They're not rich. They're just some Southern guys that like a hunt. So they, they hire a bunch of laborers and they, you know, go off into the woods for a week and they bring tents and, you know, they, they live off the land and, you know, and they, you know, they just, they just do what they do. But then you hear these descriptions of these like massive hunting parties. I can't think of the guy's name, but the um, guy was a CEO of DuPont. Uh, he bought an island off of South Carolina just for the point, the purpose of hunting. And, you know, he would bring these giant retinues down there with them and they would head off, you know, head off into the woods and, you know, the, the black laborers would be carrying, you know, everything you could I didn't imagine. know that word. Yeah. Don't know that word. Retinue. Oh, retinue. Yeah. So it's, it's a fancy word for like the, uh, your, your, your posse. Your, Shitload uh, of people. Yeah. Your, your, your entourage. <laughs> uh, That's okay. they, Retinue. They would have called it a retinue because that was the fancy, makes me sound like an aristocrat term they wanted to use. Got it. The more guys that are with me, the more people carrying my stuff, the more my hunting camp looks like my house, the more that means, you know, I've made it. Yeah. So it's sort of that, uh, you know, set yourself up as an aristocrat kind of thing that visitors were so drawn to back then. Um, what, what are there, are there, I mean, there's a ton I missed cause it's a big book, but are there, where you're from where you're sitting right now, are there questions you wish I'd asked you to explain various aspects of this book? Well, yeah, I, I think, I think one, that, there's a couple things that I, that I think would be good to talk about. So one is, um, what was the, you know, the, po- what, what I didn't mention yet was the, was the positives, right? So we're talking about, 
you know, uh, the concerns that landowners had mm-hmm. or the conservationists had or, you know, white Southerners in general had and why they wanted to kind of restrict these practices. But on the other side of the equation is um, the benefit, right? So it isn't like it's just, oh, I, I'm, yeah, for, was, I'm, I'm forced to work no, for these white guys. No, that's a major omission because you have yeah. some amazing stories of people yeah. getting established in business and stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, go, it's, go it's, on that. There, there's, a, there's a big benefit. So um, for one thing, it's, it's a rare thing during the Jim Crow period for a person of color to have sort of a public way to demonstrate I'm better at something than a white person. That was a no-no. Can, can you tell people specifically what Jim Crow means? Sure. So Jim Crow is sort of the shorthand for segregation. Uh, these sort of both formal and informal laws and, and practices that popped up starting in the 1890s that sort of governed black and white social interactions. And it was, if you don't know much about the Jim Crow system, it's it's pretty mind-blowing. Um, you, know, the, you know, the big picture stuff, you know, like, you know. Uh, you know, whites only water fountains and things like that, that we think of most commonly, but then, you know, chain gangs and, you know, lots and lots of strange social rules. You know, uh, a black person can't work at a shoe store that caters to white customers because you don't want black people to work with white people's feet. Um, You know, black barbers, you know, generally uh, would would have white customers, but the reverse usually wouldn't be true. Mm-hmm. Usually you'd have to have good old black barber if, if you were a black person. Like beaches, swimming pools. Yeah, yeah. All, all that stuff segregated. So Jim Crow was basically just a way of, of making sure that everybody was was kept in their proper place. Was that a guy? Was that a person's name? Jim Crow was a, was a minstrel performer. So his name was uh, Charles. His name was Daddy Rice. Was his, I can't remember. It might be Charles, Daddy Rice. I can't remember. But Daddy Rice was a famous minstrel performer in the 1820s and 1830s. And he became world famous, traveled the world uh, by blacking his face and his hands, putting on rags, and then performing in ways that whites would have recognized as stereotypically slave. So he's a white guy. Yeah, white guy performing. Would do like blackface performances. Became Jim Crow. Yeah, became. That was like his handle. Yeah, that was the character's name, Jim Crow. Really? And you know, there's books published about this character, Jim Crow. It becomes this hugely popular thing. And then the interesting thing is that. That's where that word comes Some, from. Yeah, somehow I that was name- like a, some kind of like, I don't know, I was like a- Politician. Politician yeah. from the time. Well, yeah. you know, the, the basic idea is, um, you know, these this Jim Crow character is kind of based on the idea that people of color are childlike, stupid, uncivilized. I mean, it's very negative, very racist, you know, this, this character. And it fit what white audiences wanted to believe about people of color. Uh, so uh, kind of a character designed to show- uh, you know, this is what this yeah, is what we're dealing with here, folks. It sort of became an easy shorthand in the 1890s. Well, these laws designed to keep black people where they belong, let's call them Jim Crow laws. Okay. So that's sort of organically how it evolved. Yeah. And then you were going to get into, and there's a handful of things you have in there of people that um, maybe established a fishing mm-hmm. business. And then became out of that, like owned multiple vessels, bought land, mm-hmm. established businesses, like people who had like real success stories. Yeah, there, there's some great that, ones that came out of hunting and fishing that that went mm-hmm. on to be have generational impact. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about Holt Collier in a minute. That that's my, my my favorite individual person from the book. But my individual favorite story. It's not very long, but I, I just love this one. And this is the kind of uh, freedom you could have with. Um, the kind of weird relationships that emerged in, in the post-emancipation period, right? Like on the one hand, you know that your guides, your laborers are really amazing at this. 
But acknowledging that is going to sort of threaten the white on top sort of white supremacy model that we have by then in the South. So I, there's this great story I came across where uh, an, a guy from, uh, I think he's from Philadelphia, is out on uh, a duck hunt or a quail hunt, whatever it was, uh, with with one black guide. And they're, they're you know, scaring up birds and a bird, you know, is, is scared up. <laughs> Sorry. Flushed. And a bird is flushed. Thank you. And uh, I know words like retinue, not words like flushed. Uh, so birds are scared up. White guy jumps up, takes a shot misses the guide stands up shoots it and says good shot <laughs> they scare up another bird the white guy misses the guy says, oh great shot sir and then that went that went on the whole day and then they're walking home and uh the the guy was was talking about how how pissed off this white guy was walking in front of him the whole time knowing that he didn't do a very good job with those birds and only imagining how pleased the guide must have been thinking like yeah we both know that I'm better at this than yeah, you but yeah. I can play the game if I have to so I really like that one example because it yeah. was just a nice little like, I can I can dig you a little bit in a way that I couldn't <laughs> before you know yeah, yeah. Uh, but the one that the one that stands out and it's just it's just one of the great stories of all time and I'm not the first person to talk about Holt Collier there's been a book written about him and some children's books actually uh, but Hulk Collier is, is I think, well, I, I would say the most famous sportsman in the South, uh, probably of all time, unless you count someone like Daniel Boone or, you know, some of those, some of those folks. But um, Hulk Collier was a slave in Mississippi and his story is just absolutely incredible. Um, before, before he was, he was a famous hunting guide. Um, he was a slave in Mississippi and uh, his master was a man named Colonel Howell Hines. And when the Heinz family, you know, goes off to war, when the Civil War starts, they took Holt Collier with them as a servant. And he wound up working as a scout for whatever army outfit that his, that his, that his master belonged to. Scouting against the Northern Army. Against the Northern Army. Man, that's got a conflicted and he, position. Yeah, and he is officially recognized by the Daughters of the Confederacy as a Confederate veteran. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And he continued after the like war Like went above over. and beyond the call of duty. And, and, and that's the whole, when you think of Holt Collier, above and beyond the call of duty. He was, he was a, a loyal huh. servant, and then he was a loyal soldier. And then when the war ended, he went to work on the Heinz Plantation as a sporting guide and was, was so good that he's one of these ridiculous figures that you hear about his sporting uh, prowess and you think, really? Did you really kill 500 bears? That seems like a lot, you know? So he, he, there are all these legends about him. And the reason he becomes so well-known is because when um, the Roosevelt hunts, as they were known, Roosevelt had these huge, two huge hunting excursions in the South. And one was like 1903, one was like 1907. Uh, when he contacted uh, some of his buddies down in the South, hey, I want to do a really big elaborate hunt, put it together for me. They they did what what we've talked about before. They they got some guys that knew the best places to go, and they said, "Okay, who's going to assemble the army of African Americans that we need to provide the setting the president needs?" And they tapped Holt Collier to head the hunt. So he was he was the guy in charge of, of both of those Roosevelt hunts. And the the, the specific story that makes him so famous is um, apparently if for four or five days. I this was. One hunt was in the Louisiana cane breaks and one was in the Yazoo Delta. I can't recall which one was which, but uh, the first of the two, apparently Holt Collier, they didn't have a lot of luck finding the bear because Roosevelt had dreamed of a Southern black bear forever, he said. So Collier apparently had gone off to do some scouting to see if they could switch uh, locations. While he was gone, apparently some of the other guys had captured a black bear 
which was weirdly common back then because people would capture bears and then they would use it for bear baiting, the grossest sport <laughs> ever. We just get sick dogs on a bear and then mm -hmm. bet on how many dogs it would take, you know, to kill it. Um, so they captured this black bear so Roosevelt could kill it. And Holt Collier got back to camp and he said, whoa, you, you can't, this is a chained up animal. You can't shoot this. It's not sporting. And Roosevelt was, yeah, that, that, that's a great idea. That's not sporting. I'm not going to do it. So Roosevelt ordered that they released. Was that uh, the teddy bear incident? That's the teddy bear incident. So yeah. it, 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 was, it was Holt Collier that apparently told Roosevelt that he shouldn't kill the bear. So the cartoon of Teddy's bear uh, comes from, from Holt Collier. That's that? And then he sent yeah. he sent Collier some kind of a- I mean, I've heard that story a hundred uh, times, but I never knew uh, that the guy that involved uh, in it was- was had that story. Uh, well, yeah, you know, it, I, mean, I, I never knew any, I never knew anybody involved in besides Roosevelt. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess what in the future, if you come across kind of stories from, from this time period, um, you know, how often do they really go into discussions of the guys, whether they're white or black, right? Mm. Usually it's just the guys, we're the ones that we, we talk about. And then you're not going to talk about your laborers that much, especially if, if they're people of color. And um, in the aftermath of this hunt, Roosevelt was so grateful that he fired, because later in the hunt, he got his black bear. And he was so grateful that he sent Holt Collier a, uh, I can't remember the exact model, but some kind of brand new Winchester rifle. And that Collier used that for the rest of his life because it was oh, the yeah. rifle that Roosevelt had Probably sent Probably in 1895. That, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that sounds about right. Why are you um, saying that, Yanni? Well, that's like, that's Roosevelt's rifle. Winchester bottle, 1895. Oh, where's that action. gun now? Uh, if I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in, I think it's in a, in a historical society somewhere in Mississippi. I thought I may have read somewhere that they have that. I'd like to fire a couple cracks with that gun, man. But it's, it's huh. pretty amazing. And it brought him to some, to some national prominence. And when, uh, there was a little bit of uh, a blowback on Roosevelt he was publicly praising this guy. He sent him this rifle. Uh, and uh, some people were like, what's the president doing hanging out with this black guy? What, what, this isn't right. A lot of people in the South were kind of angry about this. And it just didn't visually match what they thought the president of the United States should be doing. And editorials appeared in, in Southern newspapers after that. And they were like, look, you gotta understand, this guy was the best slave ever. This guy was a soldier for us. He's the best, he's the perfect servant. If anybody deserves to be talked about by the president, it's Holt Collier. So the question that got me thinking was, okay. Did, did Roosevelt a, ever weigh in on it anymore? Basically, he would just kind of, he didn't, he, I don't think Roosevelt, he were pals or anything. He just, he basically would just say like, look, this is, a, this is one of the best sportsmen I ever saw. Okay. So but of, but of he, he didn't like he get into, this. he didn't like engage in that conversation oh, at that I'll point. I'll just a one line here from Wikipedia about how badass he was. <laughs> He killed more than 3,000 bears during his lifetime, <laughs> more than those. This is the real uh, humdinger here. More than Clay Newcomb. More than those <laughs> taken by Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone combined. Hmm. Wow, so, so, so his fake, his fake, his fake, listen, listen. His, his fake number was better than Boone and Crockett's listen. fake number. Here no, he goes, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Wikipedia does have things wrong sometimes. But, you know, for me, it, 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 the extraordinary question is about Holt Collier, undeniably an amazing sportsman, even if his numbers are you know, wildly exaggerated, prominent, famous for his day, fairly wealthy, fairly well-known. There's not a whole lot of African-American sportsmen who become celebrities in that time period. He did it. So it's a great thing. And what a great way for him to uh, support his family and you know, carve out a niche. But then I also wondered like, but what's the cost of that? You know, If you're Holt Collier, you basically have to position yourself as the quintessential servant. Mm. 
And for a lot of white Southerners, you know, you know, they, they would look at that relationship and they would see Holt Collier and they would see, see that? That's alive and well. The old master-slave thing, it's alive and well. It's like the way it should be. So for a lot of Southerners, they really looked to the sporting field, at, you know, not just a way of preserving the sporting tradition, but to preserve the racial tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, where else can you find that pure, I'm always going to have people of color around me serving me now that emancipation is here. We're still going to find it in the sporting field. So it was a way of kind of resurrecting that old South and keeping it alive. So on the one hand, if, if you're that, that sporting guy who can make fun of, of, uh, of the white guy, yeah, that's a good thing. And I'm sure that's pretty satisfying. But isn't it interesting that basically you, you, you find a niche for yourself in an occupation that demands subservience? Yeah. And that must have been tough. That must have been a, a real double-edged sword. Now that Yanni's brought Boone into it. Did you read about or just consider writing about Boone's relationship with his old slave? Like when Boone mm -hmm. got old and he was going blind, mm -hmm. he, I don't want to, I, I hate to use the, I don't know. They were like, people around them described them as best friends. Mm -hmm. However true that is, but it's like Boone had a slave. That was his hunting, people describe that. That was his hunting buddy. That was his mm -hmm. hunting partner. Like the two of them would go on big canoe-based mm -hmm. hunting trips. Did you ever spend any time on like what that what the hell that relationship was? I, I haven't I haven't jumped into into that much. It's an interesting topic though. I should check that out. Yeah, Boone would hunt in his later years. Boone would like that's who he hung out with. Yeah, I mean he could have hung out with virtually. I mean he was famous in his time. Mm -hmm. That's who he hung with. Yeah, I and mean he'd go on these trips, you know. And I I could be totally misremembering this. Didn't he take that guy with him to the Alamo? Boone didn't go to the Alamo. No, I'm oh, sorry. I thought you meant Crockett. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because Crockett brought a bunch of pals of his that were hunting buddies. Oh, okay. Uh, they didn't stay. <laughs> but yeah. Down to the Alamo. Yeah, but those two uh, get those two get tangled up a lot. But yeah, yeah he died. He died in Missouri. Okay. Um, yeah. I have one more question for yeah. you. Have you ever spent time reading about uh, the slave that Lewis and Clark brought with them? No, I've not done that either. But I would like to. Yeah. It's you know it's 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 a fascinating. They, fr they freed him afterward. Yeah. But so you got like, they got like a, whatever, hundred guys on payroll. They got the one, they got like one dude who's not. Mm -hmm. Just weird. It's it, one of the things that's, that's so tough to, to tease out in these stories. You know, like you mentioned, you mentioned Boone and his slave. And I don't know this story, but what I, what I can probably say with some certainty is that we've based our, our view of that relationship pretty much from white sources. Cause that's probably all we have. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about when you, when you read about these, these, uh, you know, these master-servant relationships in, in the post-war sporting field, you never get or rarely get the laborer's perspective. It's almost always the white guy's perspective. Oh, it'd be perspective. fascinating to know what that guy's... Yeah, so... Like, how he comprehended his relationship with yeah. this, like, like, very, very famous person. Yeah, like, what is what is uh, what does that guy say when he walks away, mm -hmm. right? If, if Oh, they're, they're best friends. They're... What a great relationship. Well, maybe he saw it a little differently, you know? Yeah, the same, we thing, don't with know. The same yeah. thing with York. The Lewis mm -hmm. and Clark slave. Um, and maybe with him, I mean, you know, by that, in that circle, you were in a world where, you know, they were celebrated. Mm -hmm. I haven't read into it. Maybe there are accounts from him. You know, Lewis and Clark would point out that um, the Native Americans definitely recognized him mm -hmm. as different, you know, and uh, many were quite attracted to him. Mm -hmm. Didn't like the white groove. 
but liked that skin, mm-hmm. you know, would single him out. But yeah, and then they emancipated him afterward. Mm-hmm. But no, to hear his take on it, I mean, his take on it, um, would it have been, yeah, it was cool that, you know, they freed me. Or would his take have been on it, come on, man. Like, I didn't have any, no one asked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sign up. And, and, and there's the single biggest challenge of studying a topic like this. It, it's sources. You know, so what do people of color think about this topic? Okay, well, I've got letters to Forest and Stream, you know, and sporting publications and agricultural journals and people of color aren't contributing to those. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting the white perspective. Well, okay, well, I'll read the interviews with former slaves that were done, you know, during the WPA interviews. Well, the, the, most of the interviewers were white. So we don't know to what extent people were being as candid as they might. So you're always trying to tease out that other perspective. Sure. And that's really been, you know, one of the big weaknesses that historians always wanting to focus on the elite story that I mentioned at the beginning in that time period, didn't even bother trying to figure out what, what the poorer folks were thinking in that story. So it, it kind of fell to later generations of historians to think, okay, where can we tease out? How can we find what people were actually thinking about this? Can we look at, you know, court transcripts or interviews with former slaves or how can we use a white source that talks about hunting and fishing in a way that you can sort of reveal, you know, some kind of, like that, that story of the guy talking about his friend who was being, you know, outshot by, by the laborer, right? Um, the guy was never going to tell that story, yeah. but his buddy to make fun of him quotes that story in Forest and Stream. So I was able to get a little bit of that story, uh, but it's hard to find. That seems like quite the magazine. It was cool. It was very, <laughs> and I, I, and I got to tell you, um, I get pretty easily distracted because I get pretty enthusiastic about stuff. And I pick up a 19th century copy of Forest and Stream. What I should be doing is flipping through it and seeing if I can find mention of Ray. Instead, I'm reading them all. So I, you know, I've read so many issues of Forest and Stream over the years because it's just fun. <laughs> I love looking at the ads. And you the, and our the buddy humor Randall Williams could have a good conversation. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, had a, we got a friend who he, he came on the show before. We'll have to find out what the hell episode this was. Very early in the infancy of this, mm-hmm. this here uh show um he looked at what did he look at 100 years it was it was not quite i want to say it was like post world war ii i think is where he picked it up right and i can't remember if race was one of them but he reviewed attitude towards gun rights attitude towards the environment attitude a handful of things Mm -hmm. just in in a couple publications Mm -hmm. over 100 years the evolution like basically the evolution of the American sportsman's mm-hmm. mind, opinions, interests. Perception, yeah. Yeah, as captured mm-hmm. in 100 years of these. And, and mostly through the editorials, right? A lot of editorials. Yeah. But he uncovered yeah. interesting things, man, that, um, that, that we talk about in the show is uh, when freezers became a thing. Mm-hmm. That changed shit. Like, when pe- you know, whatever, people are hunting in the 40s mm-hmm. or whatever. I can't remember when it, when it happened, but you didn't have a freezer. You didn't the, the whole idea of like shooting a deer and putting it in your freezer and eating it all year wasn't a thing. Uh-huh. Just wasn't a thing. Then all of a sudden it became like everybody had a freezer. It just changed the whole conversation mm-hmm. about game. Oh, that's yeah. that. That makes me want to dive back into something because freezer full of elk meat, right? Like how many yeah. times have you heard that? But like, no, it's like wasn't the case. You have there's nothing you can do with it. You got it and you had to find gave it away and everybody ate it and it, that was it. You know the the, the big the big <laughs> thing for for elite sportsmen, especially on these. 
you know, these big excursions, you know, lots of visitors, lots of money, you know, the really prominent ones where they would have you know, the retinue, right? So one of these big hunts, uh, the kind of standard move for these elites was they would get every single thing that they captured, that they caught. They would divvy up some of it among their guides and laborers. And then the rest, they would just have a big old party and give away to people in the area to show their sort of aristocratic, yeah. uh, you know, whatever they call it, their, their, their generosity. I wonder how that changed with the freezer, because I would imagine giving it away, you, if you're not going to eat it, because someone's going to say, oh, my God, did you see what uh, Mr. John, he was eating what he caught. Is he having hard times? What's going on here? Because <laughs> that was sort of thing. Like, I, I don't have to eat what I catch. I give it away. Yeah. I wonder if once freezers were around, if they, hey, throw that in the freezer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not give that away. You got to go read Randall's uh, dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I wish I could. Yeah, you'll find it. Go way back. We know now there's like a lack of diversity, right, mm -hmm. in the, in the hunting general hunting and fishing crowd in this country, and obviously, it stems from what we've just been talking about. So, yeah. can you kind of put that in perspective? Well, yeah, I, I, and I guess I would I would have to say I didn't get explicitly too much into this in the book because I sort of kind of shut it off around the you know, 1930s, 1940s. Um, but I think there's 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 a lot there. Um, you know, I was actually talking to Jonathan Wilkins about this not too long ago. The sort of stereotype. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, people of color, you know, don't like the outdoors or don't swim or, you know, don't hunt as often as whites. It's predominantly a white thing. Um, and you touched on that, you know, in that blog that you posted a few weeks ago, the idea yeah, that diversity I, can be an issue sometimes in, in, in the contemporary scene. Yeah. And I always, I always attributed it or imagined it being like a, a demographics issue mm -hmm. that after the war, so many people came in the industrial to work in the industrialized north mm -hmm. that's one of the things that surprised me how prevalent hunting and fishing were at yeah. a time right yeah absolutely and I, I the way i would look at it is um you know there's this very deep and rich sporting tradition in, in the black community mm -hmm. you know slaves free blacks you know and we it, it intensifies after emancipation because of sporting tourism so it's it's a big part uh, uh, of black life especially in the rural south but then we can look at at uh restrictions on sporting practices in the South, they're used the same way that other Jim Crow laws are used. You know, they're, they're really trying to regulate black behavior. So by the time we get to, you know, 1900, 1910, uh, the black population in the South was like, look, you know, lynchings, Jim Crow laws, voting restrictions, hunting and fishing restrictions, it's all part of a big story that's, you know, really making the South a less hospitable place. So the great migration begins and then, um, to Northern cities, to Northern cities. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think probably the thing that, that, that helps people remember just how connected, uh, African-American population was to, uh, hunting and fishing in the South, which we think of as, you know, hunting and fishing as a rural thing, right. For most people. Well, in 1890, African-Americans were demographically the most Southern and rural population in the United States. Hmm. But then the migration period starts between say 1900 and 1950. And today African-Americans are demographically the most Northern and urban population. No kidding. But if you back yeah. up far enough, hmm. it's a rural population in the South, historically relying on these forms of, of land and wildlife use to get by. It gets harder for them to do that. And I, I got to believe it's on the list of factors that, that sure. influence the Great Migration. So I feel like there was a, there was a sort of a, a separate, a forced separation. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think if you back up 120 years, I don't think you, you could hold the, the idea that people of color don't use the natural environment as much as whites. I, that, that was just, that was kind of separated. They were, they were, that was taken from them. 
And yeah, not only did they use it, but they were, sounds like, re- renowned as possibly being the best ones at using mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a real tradition there, and uh, it, I think if we remember that, uh, I, I, you made the point in the blog, right? The idea that you know the question of what's the way forward, uh, bringing new people into the sporting community, or or preserving the traditions of those who already do it. Well, for the people who are saying, you know, let's preserve the traditions of those who already do it. Um, the, the list of people that, that have a tradition in those areas is bigger than our current list of people that yeah. think of themselves as traditional sportsmen and sportswomen. There's this other group of people that used to be a huge part of American hunting and fishing and not quite so much now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we can just say, well, you know, clearly historically people of color haven't really wanted to be involved in this. Wasn't their jam. Yeah, we don't need to think yeah. about it. So there, there is a question of, you know, participation in outdoor activities, hunting and fishing among diverse populations. Yeah, it does it bring up. It needs to be it, encouraged. Yeah, yeah, it does bring up interesting, just the idea about tradition, mm-hmm. you know, depends how far back you want to delve back. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the years that I've met, you know, just not in the context of my work, but I've just met them and, and they, oh, you do hunting and fishing? Oh, yeah, my family used to be really big into that. And, you know, not so much now. And I said, where'd your family come from? I said, oh, we migrated from Mississippi, you know, mm-hmm. 1900, 1910. I'm like, well, that's, 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 consist- right. that's consistent with the story. Yeah. yeah, I regard myself as um, having like a deep family tradition mm-hmm. in hunting, but my ancestors came from Sicily, mm-hmm. Western Europe, like probably not. By deep, I mean, right, I mean you, my, you, by deep, I mean my grandpa. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, do you know if those ancestors that were in Europe hunted? No, we have no one has any idea who the hell they were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. On the Sicilians, we do. The Ranellas, we do. I, I don't mm-hmm. know that they didn't hunt, but they damn sure didn't hunt when they got here. So I'm just saying, like, deep tradition mm-hmm. for me is that my maternal and paternal grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of whom I met. Mm-hmm. And hung out with. So that's how deep that is. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in, in a sense, I would argue there's a, there's a different kind of depth there. there. There's an historical depth to those kind of connections. Because it, it, what, I've, what I've learned over the years from reading different books about hunting coming out of the European tradition is a lot of people, even like these maligned, you know, European immigrants that go to New York State and are accused of being game hogs. Um, you know, you're an immigrant that comes from most of Europe. They've got a long history of really restrictive game laws, a game system that just flat out gives all the privileges and rights to the, sure. uh, the landed aristocrats. Yeah, you can explore that through like elements of that through the, the Robin Hood narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a tremendous source of conflict. And when uh, people migrate to the U.S. and they're like, whoa, we can just do this? This is amazing. So there's this sort of uh, instant tradition, like, look, I am allowed to do this now. This is fan. What a land of opportunity mm-hmm. when I can actually freely hunt and fish without having to worry about the rich guy always gets first crack. So I think that uh, a lot of uh, sort of the more recent sporting, even you know, even if you, you know, you're the first generation to pick it up, you're kind of continuing that tradition of something that demonstrates independence. Sure, that, that's common across you know, white, black, rich, poor. When people do these things historically, they think this is about sufficiency, independence, individual competency. Yeah, it feels like in, yeah. for many people, it feels like an American birthright. Exactly, yeah. and that was going to be my closing thought. And you're just you know saying it way better than I could. But it was just that like reading the book, 
has given me a completely new and, and better, stronger appreciation for hunting and fishing as like a means to freedom. Because if they, if like these slaves didn't have that, like, you know, just imagine, you know, I mean, we don't know what the outcome would have been, right? But like with hunting and fishing, it like immediately gave them a means to be like, oh, even though we're free, even though you still hold, you know, some power over mm-hmm. us because we, we, you have to survive and we need to work and we mm-hmm. need to feed. But because they had hunting and fishing, they were allowed to be freer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before you came in, Yanni and I were just having a quick chat and he kind of pointed out, he didn't use these words, but he pointed out the ways in which it's a, it's like a celebration. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, a celebration of hunting and fishing. Yeah, it's just like I what it so. meant to people. Yeah, I think so. Because, yeah. you know, I, I guess the, the person I, he, let's circle back to Charles Ball, right? The guy who had the quote about feeling like an independent man. You know, he's a slave. And this kind of powerful idea of competence, which we sort of lost, we don't really dig that these days. But the 19th century model of competence was I'm independent, I own my own land, I can feed myself and my family. And I'm beholden to no one. I'm debt free. Like so, that was like the goal. You're a competent, you know, American. I'm still big into competency, but I don't describe it that way. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not a term we use much anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's a now great. It it's a great like, idea. Now you just mean just able to fix stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this notion of, of being a competent citizen, and it was really understood back then as that was really a white thing, or at least that was the white view. Like competence, a slave's not going to have that. Right, they're owned. They're literally they're, they can't have honor because they're owned by somebody else, and they're not going to be independent. They don't feed their family. I do. So that just wasn't a thing that I that I as a, as an owner thought that was for them. But then you're Charles Ball, and you're like, you know what? You own me. You own my family. You control what I do. You control my days. But you know what? I am the best sportsman you have. I go off on my own time and earn game and income for my family that you don't want me to have, and I do it anyway, and I demonstrate skill that you say shouldn't be demonstrated by people of color. And in the sort of limited world of options uh, of a slave, that's a, that's, those are a couple of extended middle fingers to the master. And in and of itself, that's worth something, I think. Yeah. All right. Scott Giltner with, we're going to hit it again. Culver, Stockton College. That's it. But it's not in Missouri. It is. Oh, it is? Canton, Missouri, yeah. What were you saying? I thought you were saying, what about Illinois? You were born oh, in Illinois? Uh, I, I live right across the river in Quincy, Illinois. Oh, that's why. Yeah. Canton's then, on one side of the river and Quincy's a little down the street on the, the other side. The home of the guy that was flying the Enola Gay when it dropped the... Yeah, Paul Tibbetts. Yeah, he was born in... Uh, his mother, Enola Gay, was, uh, was born and raised in Quincy. His mom was Enola Gay? Yeah, that's why the plane's named that. He got to dub his own plane? Yeah. Named it after his mom. And it dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki? I think Hiroshima. What happened to that guy? I have no idea. I, I do know that about, uh, oh, geez, 30 years ago or so, one of the one of the historians in town told me that uh, there was a push to name an elementary school after him. Mm-hmm. And then some people were like, uh, I don't know, atomic bomb elementary school. And they eventually shelved the plan. But they well, were going to name a school after him. And they're, eh, they were afraid. So... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I doubt, you know, I mean, the guy had, was doing a job. He's yeah. said to do. Did his job, did it well. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that one some other time. That's a tough one. <laughs> no, nah, it's not tough. I mean, come on. For, for some people, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, for some people, it's a tough one. All right, y'all. 
Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. This has been great. Yeah, thank you all so much. Great book. Everybody should read this book. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it is, uh, I'll just mention this, a shameless plug if you don't mind. No. Uh, You can grab this on Amazon. Um, It is currently out of stock, but I checked this morning and it's listed as uh, restocked on June 26th. Oh, awesome. So that's not too bad. So. Yeah. As usual, when when there's a book and low supply and then all of a sudden you see it selling for- Big amounts of money. Mm. Have you seen it go for a lot of money at sometimes? Because uh, like there's like not many for sale, and some guys like oh, I'll I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll yeah. sell it for three hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, two things uh, to any of you out there that may listen to this. If any of you paid that amount of money for my book, I have two thoughts. One, thank you, and two, you're out of your mind. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> Let me hit you with a quick uh, book story. So. Uh, there's a book I'm a great admirer of by a guy named Duncan Gilchrist. It's called Hunt High. Not like baked, but Hunt the High Country. Uh-huh. And um, I love the book. And he was a very accomplished alpine hunter. And I always talk about this book, but the book was out of print. And eventually I realized that someone run off with my copy. So I go online and then there's some guy selling it for 100 bucks or 75 bucks. I'm like, that's ridiculous, you know. But I wanted it back. So I buy the book. The book shows up in my house with a sticky note on the cover. And it says, dude, you're the reason I bought this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then you had to give me that copy of that book, which I now proudly own. I'm glad to know that it's a $100 copy of that book. Because I had loaned out to you a a first edition Jack O'Connor. That you uh, had given away. So now I'm the owner of your $100 copy of Hunt High. Oh, yeah. You're not getting it back. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to be, right? They say they say that uh, books shouldn't have owners, just readers. So uh-huh. just pass them around. Yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't abide by that. But <laughs> well, I, I like the other stuff you said, Scott. All right, thanks again. <laughs> thanks. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.